Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. Oh. Yeah, this is what I'm thinking it's going to be. This is what you're primed and ready for. Yeah. So, hello, everybody. My, oh, wrong way. Okay. All right, everybody. Welcome. This is episode 241 of the Gale and Trombley Show. Uh, my guest today, um, I believe he actually was supposed to be one or two ago. I had to cancel on him. I was feeling like crap one day. And uh, he graciously rescheduled. Um, so, our guest today is Matt Medeiros. Um, Matt. Actually, I'm not going to give a quick background. You're going to give the background. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Galen. Now you can do the background. <laughs> All right. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, born, in Sar- or born and raised in Saranac, New York, uh, the gateway of the Adirondacks, as I like to call it. Um, I've run uh, pretty much my entire life. Big fan of sports. I coach at Saranac High School, cross country and track and field, and I am the owner of Spartan Running Company and president of the Northern Lights Track Club. So that's where Spartans came from? Uh, Spartans came from, I'm the first ever Spartan race winner back in 2010. Ever? Ever. Like not just local, like ever? Ever. Where was that held? Vermont? It was held over in Essex Junction, Vermont at the Catamount Center. Like the the original Spartan race? like The very first Spartan sprint race was the very first one, 2010. So are you like on the Hall of Fame now at, at the Spartan? Uh, I'm, you must be. I'm on their website as the first winner of the Spartan. That's wild. Yeah. So that's where the Spartan came from. Yes. Or has stayed with it. And now your new mascot. Yes. It's now the new mascot of the Saranac Central School. And I'm excited for it. This is full circle for you. It really is. So Okay. I did not know that. Sorry. Keep going on, on your background. I'm going to look some of this stuff up. So I am a semi-professional runner. Uh, I have ambassadorships and a sponsorship for products. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run 11 marathons, numerous half marathons, 5Ks, 10Ks. I'm a race director of the Run for John, which has been around for 33 years. Mm-hmm. So running has been a big part of my life. Where did that start? That started with my father. Uh, he was the track and field coach and cross-country coach at Saranac and still is the cross-country coach. Okay. Um, he started back in 1991, I think, fall of 91. And, uh, I was, I like, I played sports growing up, soccer, baseball, basketball, and I just didn't really enjoy them. I was good at soccer and basketball. Um, but I just enjoyed the individual aspect of running. So are you, I mean, so like, I, I mean, I, I don't run, but I love playing golf. So I had like an individual aspect as a kid. I still, I still play, but like back in the day, I was, you know, played more, a little bit more serious about it, more uh, maybe competitive on it. Um, I gravitated more towards team sports because I liked my buddies and stuff, but I did have, I did like the idea of like, it's all on you and you kind of have to be like, keep everything in control and figure it out. And there's really no, you know, you can ask different sports, obviously golf's a little bit more uh, uh, what, not as reflect or 
reflex, there's no reflexes in golf. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, you have to swing, yes, but there's not. It's not like a ball's being shot at you, and you got to move. Like you, you dictate the speed. You dictate what happens. Yeah. Racing is, I is like similar, but you still have to react to stuff, especially if you're racing people. Yes. Um. So where does it when it, when you have the two, what gravitates you towards the individual sport? I've just always been kind of pulled towards that individual because of my personality. Um, where I grew up in Saranac as a young child, I was in the middle of the woods and it was pretty much just me and my sister growing up. We had neighbors who were about a quarter mile down the road who actually went on to be very successful runners themselves. Um, but we really didn't have much else other than, hey, we're going to run a lap around the house, time me. And did, that's kind of where it got started. Did like, you have trails and stuff to the woods? We did, but as a young kid living in the middle of the woods, my parents were like, no, you just kind of stay close. Yeah, yeah. So um, so what, what's your first memory of, was that your first memory of running in my, general, just kind of like horsing around as kids? Yeah, yeah. It would be my first memory of really enjoying the sport and the activity of, of running. And then what, what was your first, I guess, foray into um I mean, did you start racing? Did you start doing it for fun? Did you start doing it for exercise? Like, So I'll be honest with you. I did not like running okay. until my sophomore year of high school. So as a kid growing up, my father would do the local fun runs, primarily Beekman Town High School, and he would drag my sister and I along, and they would have the half-mile, quarter-mile distances for little kids, and mm -hmm. we would do those races. And they were fun. I had, had a blast doing them. And I just kind of enjoyed the racing more than the, the actual running part of it. Okay. Um, my sophomore year of high school, the summer before, I decided that I was going to go to a cross-country camp. And they brought in some former Olympic runners, college coaches, Finnish sports doctors. And some of those speeches just changed my mentality towards the sport. Mm -hmm. And ever since, I've just kind of been like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I enjoy. So what, what part of running is, is the, um, like, obviously you have the training, you have the you know practice, you have the race day, you have like all the different styles or I guess, um, you know, I wouldn't say events, but you know what I mean? Like themes around that day, whatever that might be, long training, short training, whatever. So is it still race day still like, oh what yeah. you peak for? Like yeah. Still the adrenaline I, pump? It's, it's weird because things have changed as my, pro my career has progressed. Um, I've done some pretty phenomenal things and raced in some pretty phenomenal places. But for me, it's become more, not, not so much the racing, but the destination. Okay. So I've let the races at this point in my career choose where I'm going to travel to. And the traveling has become more of the reason why I still do it. Okay. But at the same time, I still want to compete at a high level when I'm going to these destinations. So I'm putting in 100 plus miles a week when I'm healthy. So you're not, uh, I mean, you're just not necessarily like, I got to run the Boston or the New York or, you know, whatever marathon every single year. It's more like, hey, I haven't done this race before. Let me go check it out. Check out, you know, make a little vacation out of it. So right now I'm on this kick where I want to do the six world majors. So that's. And can you list those? Yep. That's Boston, New York, Chicago in the U.S. And then Berlin. London and Tokyo internationally. Okay. And I have done four out of the six. And which I, ones haven't you done? I haven't done Tokyo or London. 
did can you do them all in the same year? Is that possible? It's possible. I mean, I know there's some freaks that have done it probably, but it's possible. Um, and as a semi professional athlete or professional athlete is a little bit easier because you hit qualifying standards. Mm-hmm. But a few years ago when COVID first hit, I think it may have been twenty twenty one actually, they did all six world majors in like a seven or eight week period. Ooh. And there were several people who did all six races in that period. Um, so what? what is, so marathon running, and I guess what's the difference between those marathons and then the Vermont marathon or Adirondack marathon, or like a, more like local smaller, because there's marathons that happen all the time. Yes. Um, and then obviously these are, so I'm going to use the golf, tennis equation of these are like the majors. Yes. Okay. So when you go race at these versus anything else, are the, are the courses more difficult? Obviously the amount of people is probably greater. Um, and I'm sure the bells and whistles at the race are, are cool, more cool. You know what I mean? It's more publicized, more, more foot, you know, just more resources at those. Yes. Um, does something jump out to you as that makes them different? Is it just that? Is the race similar? Does you find the race harder, more challenging? Well, most of the courses in the world majors are fairly flat. Uh, Tokyo, which I'm actually going to be running in March, um, is like pancake flat. Chicago okay. is pancake flat. Berlin is pancake flat. Um, New York is a little hilly. Uh, Boston's a little hilly, and I have yet to see what London looks like because I want London to be my last one. Okay. Um, so I haven't really looked too much into that one, but it's the the difference between those races and the smaller, more local races for me is the atmosphere of the races because of, like you said, the resources that they, they have, mm-hmm. they're in bigger cities. Um, and just everybody who's in that race is there that weekend and just gives the city a whole different life. So my sister ran the New York City one last year, I believe. Did you race that too? Not last year, but I did it in 2017. Okay, so she ran it last year, first time. So I was like on the app following, and and I don't know. I mean, I know New York City fairly well. I didn't know the race course. Um, it's kind of cool. They start in Staten Island. I think they go through all the boroughs. They just they touch all of them, but they most spend most of the time, I believe, in Manhattan, um, or a decent amount. The, the ending is Manhattan. So when you start like watching it and it was tracking, it was pretty cool. And then of course we were watching it on TV. So you watch you know, like the professionals go through. And then you started watching, you know, just the every man kind of thing finish up. And it was it was just neat to see because, like, it's cool that you can have a race where you had the best person in the world racing against someone that qualified or, or whatever. It's just like, you know, me, just like, I have nothing to do with running, but I got I qualified and I get to run next to, you know, the Tom Brady of the sport, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, but No, I was going to say, is that, I mean, is that something that you, like, if you had to put yourself rank yourself in any of these races like what percentile do you, are you like 98th 99th percentile of these races i'm assuming so the highest i finished or the lowest depending on how you look at it so i finished 128th at new york okay overall men and women in 2017 out of 40, 40 yeah 40,000 people yeah that's wild yeah so i was in like top 0.01% that's so wild of finishers um and, and something like that, I mean, are you, was that like a PR for you that day? That day, yes, that was a PR for me. Has it still stood to this day? Uh, no, I've actually PR'd two years later at Chicago. 
Uh, I ran it. So in New York, yeah. I ran a 239, and then in Chicago, I ran a 233.05. Wait, say, sorry, say that something was going. Did you hear something in your. I did. I don't know if that was like reverb or something. Sorry. Say, 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 say those things again. So in New York, times I mean, yeah. So in New York in 2017, I ran a 239. I think it was like 47 or something like that. Ooh. And then in Chicago, I ran a 233.05. Wow. And where did where did Chicago put you? Was that higher? Chicago, I think I finished 168th or something like that. That's still so impressive. Yeah. So that that day was like perfect weather conditions day. And the women's world record was actually broken on that day. So what's what would you consider perfect conditions? Uh, mid forties, a little bit overcast, maybe a little bit of rain. Would be, really? Yeah. So the a little bit cooler then. Yeah. So like fifty sixties, that's too hot for me. Yes. Wow. Because I see some people like you know fairly cold weather out, and there's people running around with like no shirt on, just like you know. And I'm like, it's kind of chilly. I get it. Like your body warms up and yeah. stuff. But like, do you start off? Um, like straight up no shirt just shorts just taking out the gate on a day like that or do you warm up and like drop layers or do you or do you like i I don't know how racing works i mean it's not a lot of time for you guys to drop layers you guys are pretty much so just sprinting with the racing part of it where we we're allowed to wear throwaway clothes yep uh to the race start and then as the race starts whatever we don't want with us we throw and donate to the local whatever they're donating to those clothes to usually it's like the boys and girls clubs. so you just throw it to the side of the track and just then... throw it to the side of the start and gun goes off and off we go oh so once you start you gotta you can't take clothes you off. can i've done that before um it's a little it takes up energy that you could use during the race so yeah. I, yeah. I normally just try to keep what i'm gonna want on for the duration of the race on once the gun goes off and what, what's your what's your outfit like what are you wearing tank top you wearing like long sleeve it depends on the day okay. um and my mood so usually the bigger races i just go tank top either compression shorts or like the short really short like two inch inseam shorts yep that you see the professional runners running um i tend to wear the arm sleeves just on a chillier day set because they're easy to take off if you want to take them off mm-hmm. and then compression socks or sleeves on my calves just because those tend to tighten up a little bit late in the race so so when, when you're running um i've never done a marathon i'll be honest i think the farthest i've ever ran at one point in time might be three miles like i'm not i've never been a runner played soccer i say i ran enough during soccer so but if you're if you're running like what what are you thinking of like going into a race? Like what's your mindset going in? Cause again, you're not just trying to finish this race. You're trying to do a certain time. You're trying to like accomplish certain markers. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. So my goal is to go sub two thirty at some point before I'm done with my competitive career of running. So is your expectation every time you line up two thirty, or are you just kind of like, I just don't have it. I'm not peaked out. I have a nagging injury. Like so I ran Berlin in 2021 and I was in shape to go two twenty three if everything went right. And mm-hmm. that's the thing with marathoning is it's such a long race that so much can go wrong. Weather, nutrition, your stomach's not agreeing with you, you're overheating, so many factors. Um, but yeah, so I don't know where I was going with that. Well, um, like uh, like I said, like what are you thinking of? Oh, so what, I, yeah. so what am I thinking about? Yeah, so it depends on the race. Most of the world majors I'm... I'm all for, like I'm going sub 230 or trying to go sub 230. 
every time. If I'm in a local race like the uh, the Ver- Berlin City Burlington City Marathon, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm really not there to run a fast time because I know it's not a fast course. I'm there. To Meaning, pick. like hilly and stuff. Yeah, it's it's a little bit more hilly, not conducive to running two thirty, and usually it's on Memorial Day weekend, which every year seems to be ridiculously hot. Mm-hmm. So, I like I said, I guess it really depends on the race. But every time, like I'm all the world majors, like I've the first time I've run them, I've trained to try to go sub two thirty. Boston, so it's like a full send. They're going for it. Oh yeah, I'm. I want to have my PR be two twenty something before I. Jeez, it's so crazy. Yeah. What uh, so when when you start um, I, I have so many questions. I'm gonna crisscross a lot of these questions because I like things pop up. I want to ask. I'm like, I should come back, but we're gonna keep going. I'm just we're gonna come back to them. Yeah, like this said, is gonna go all over the place. Yeah, we're just having a conversation. I, I, we're, we're gonna touch base on like the problem is I gotta start writing these down because I'm like I gotta ask them this. But when you start off tr- like training for. So let's just take Tokyo. Okay. Is that your next one you're doing? That's a world marathon? Yes. Okay. So we're now, what would you say, March? So we're about six months out right now, seven yeah, months out. So Have you started, tra- like, quote unquote, training for this? Unfortunately, no. Okay. So what, what would be a normal training cycle, or when do you start, like, actually trying to uh, periodize or whatever for that? Fi- that so week? I usually go with 20 week buildup okay. for the majors when I'm trying to go sub 230, but right now I'm injured. Okay. So I rolled my ankle at the beginning of the summer. Took all summer to finally get an answer, but verdict came back last week. It's a stress fracture in my tibia. So I haven't done any running all summer. I've been on the bike for the last four weeks. Um, The doctor told me to cancel the two fall marathons I was supposed to do, which were going to be sub 230 attempts. And then I should be good to start training beginning of november for tokyo which okay so that'll give you enough like in theory enough time yes okay it might i might not be able to do the same amount of miles because i'm just going to be coming back off this injury yeah um so i'm going to have to do this next training cycle is not going to be 120 mile peak weeks it's going to probably be like 65 to 70 do you think by doing so when you say 120 mile like that's your most you would run in a week. Yes. And that how many of weeks out of the twenty are you hitting those numbers? So week one of Chicago training, which was gonna be my first attempt this fall to go sub two thirty, I hit eighty two miles. Week okay. Week one. Is that, and, and how many days of the how many days are you running? Seven. Okay. It was so, it was, it was okay. gonna be twenty weeks, no days off, building up. So eighty 80 miles week one, I think week 14 or 15 was peak week. And it was going to have me at like 123 or something like that. So that's, what's that? How many per day? 30 miles a day? No, no. God, that's, Galen, your math is terrible. It's What'd you say? 100 and, 123. 123 divided by seven. Is 20, almost 20 miles a day? Like, yeah, it's like 18? 15 to 18 miles a day, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. And, and that kind of mileage, like when you're when you're hitting that. So if you say race day, I'm trying to go 100% race day. What percent? What percentage of that effort are you giving in peak peak race? Day? Is that like 80%, 90%, 70%? Um, depends on what I'm doing each day. So if I'm doing a hard workout, I'm giving the effort okay. to hit the paces that I need to hit for that workout. If I'm just going easy, then I'm just 
I've got a range of time I'm supposed to hit per mile. I try to be within that. Usually it's like seven oh to eight oh. So per mile. That's per mile. that's intense or that's that's my easy pace. Easy pace. Yeah. So when you so what dictates a hard pace versus an easy pace based on the training, based on how you feel? Based off based off what I'm supposed to be doing that day. Okay. So some days I'll be doing eight by one mile at five twenty five with a very short rest in between. Or some days I'll be doing a straight ten miles at five forty with no break at all. So when you're doing a like I'm gonna call them interval styles, like what's the what's the break of a five twenty mile for you? Like three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes? Uh, usually it's just like a couple minutes. Okay. Um, there's a distance that I kind of set up for myself, whether it be 400 or 800. Um, Is that a walk or is that jog? Jog. Okay. So you never actually stop. You yeah. just yeah, slow down. Yep. Um, and then when you go full out, that is maintaining the same pace. Yeah. Do you, does your pace does your pace change in a, in a race? Yes. So like you've already got it built in, like I'm going to try to like increase or decrease, like I guess what would your pacing be from mile one to mile 26? So I have the strategy that I found on the internet. It's called the 10-10-10 method. So okay. it breaks it up into the first 10 miles, the second 10 miles, and then the last 10K. Okay. So the first 10 miles is more about being in control, a little bit slower than what you want your goal average pace to be. And then the next 10 miles is supposed to be slightly faster than your average pace that you want at the end. And then your last 10, 10K is on heart. And when you're say, I mean, do you, are you, uh, are you tracking heart rate? Are you tracking, is no. there anything you track during this? No, I, I just track my pace. I, I'm not one of those runners who overthinks everything. Okay. Um, some people are all about, oh, my heart rate is 175. I need to set, I need to back off a little bit. I'm just, I know my body well enough at this point since I've been running for 33 years. Mm-hmm that I know what type of effort I'm giving, when to back off, when I still have more in the tank. So, And so when you, so you have split times on all, in like a watch when you're running? Yes. I, I wear a Coros Pace 2 watch. Okay. I love. It's a, it's, they say it's the lightest watch on the, on the market. It's a GPS watch. So um, the only thing with some of these bigger races that I do is they're in the city with the skyscrapers and the skyscrapers kind of interfere with the connection with the watch. Mm. So, like Chicago, for instance, when I did it, they recommended that we do a manual split at the mile marks instead of listening to our watch. So it was a little bit tougher for me because I didn't know exactly what pace I was running because the watch shows you what type of pace you're running every so often. And I would get to a mile mark and I'd click it and it would say it ran like a 536. And then I would go another quarter of a mile and it would finally click to the mile mark. So the miles were off a little bit because of the satellite connection. Gotcha. So I, f- I feel like that's the equivalent of like a swimmer's goggles filling up during a race. Yes. Like it's just like, it's like a small like thing that matters. That's like, yeah, it doesn't stop you from running, but it helps you. Yes. You know, um, what, 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 I mean, if you said like during a race, your most important tool, I'm assuming it's shoes. Yes. Like that, and what what kind of shoe? Do you have a specific preference? You said you're sponsored, right? So I am sponsored by Brooks. Okay. Um, they give me a discount on gear. It's not a paid sponsorship like professional athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to run in their carbon plated shoe. Okay. Um, because it does give back a little bit of energy return. So I was gonna say, so what what 
and again, we're going to kind of nerd out on shoes here because so you've obviously ran in a bunch of different styles of shoes. Yes. What, what's important for you in a shoe and what, what do you think matters in a shoe? Uh, for me, depend again, depends on the day. If I'm doing a track workout, I'm probably going to want a spike because it's just a little bit okay. lighter and gets a little bit extra grip. If I'm on the road doing a tempo workout at marathon pace, um, probably go with something light and cushiony, but not quite race weight. Uh, race day, I'm obviously using a race shoe that's super light, a lot of cushion, not a whole lot of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on my easy days, I'm just using a heavy trainer. It's kind of train heavy, light, race race light. Okay. And, and when you race, does it, does it, like if you're racing in a light shoe, if you were to train in that shoe, would that provide, would that potentially uh, maybe trigger shin splints or trigger something because just it's not, like I said, the sport's not there? Yeah. So, so it's kind of like just, it's a small blip on your racing radars. Like you can make it, you can use these for a day and be fine. You use these for weeks on end, you're hurting. Yes. Okay. Because the the race shoes are super, super cushiony. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with the carbon plate that gives a little bit of energy return with every step. So you really want to have more support on your training days. Um, some days when I'm doing my speed workout and I'm on the road, I'll use my racing shoes just because they're meant for the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all really depends on. Is there, is there a, um, this might be a, a weird question, but is there a specific surface you like to run on or is it always on just like concrete, like I blacktop? Am, I am all over the place. Okay. So. I ran track and field in high school, um, obviously a rubber surface, mm-hmm. ran cross country with trails, dirt, grass, and then I've now kind of gone more into the road racing because it tends to happen as you get older. Um, you, you find that you don't have that same foot speed you once had, and the longer the race, the better. So... In training, like I'm all, when I'm healthy, I'm all over the place. Like I'll one day I'll do trails, the next day I'll do a track workout, the next day I'll do an eight miler or twelve miler, whatever the case might be, on the roads. Is that for? Is that more for training or more just keep you sane? <laughs> like to, to inter, like you know what I mean to change it up a bit. It's more to keep me sane. Okay. Because if you run, for me, if I run the same route every day, it just gets super boring. So yeah. there's days where I'll travel to Lake Placid and run in Lake Placid just to do something different or mm-hmm. I'll travel somewhere I've never really run before and just get lost. And you just run based on what your watch said. So you're like, I, I got to run 15 miles today. You just kind of run until you know yeah. to turn around and come back or whatever. Yeah. So I try to do loops yep. instead of out back because that also mentally just breaks me down. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so I tend to park somewhere and like I said, I just go get lost. If I'm running trails and I'm, let's just say I'm at Point of Rush. Mm-hmm. I'll just try to hit all three points and then some of the inter intertwining trails there. And if I'm a little short, maybe I'll go out in the road just to finish it up. So you're always trying to hit a distance for the most part. Yeah. Everything's about distance when I'm marathon training. So when you, uh, so I guess the peak wise, like you said, if you go up to week, you peak in week 14 and 15. So then you taper down for about five weeks. Uh, it's usually three or four. Okay. So I may have been off with the, when or you my, said 16, my bad. You said four months. Yeah. Right, so, 16, not so, 20 weeks. I do I do 20 weeks. The first four weeks are just base mileage. Gotcha. Okay. So when you when you're uh when you're trying to kind of taper down for the race, like what does that look like? Like how many miles? You sub ten miles? Uh no. It just slowly drops each week total. Okay. Um so 
once I hit peak week, the next week after that might be like 108. And then like a 92. And then the last week or two going into the race would be like 70, then 50. Do you ever run in a day? What's the most you run in a day leading up? Do you ever run over 26? 24. I've never in any of my blocks of training have gone over 26 on the training. So what's the purpose of a 24, not a 26? Just to kind of, it's more of a mental thing for me to kind of make sure, hey, I can get to 24. Gotcha. I've only got hopefully no more than. And then at that point, I'm assuming the momentum and the people and everybody else kind of carries you. Yeah. Um, If you haven't bonked at that point, because there's a lot to marathon racing that, Again, can so, play factors. So last year, like I said, I I, uh, I watched um, the London Marathon. Guy goes out super hot and forgot his name, like fairly far ahead. You probably watched this. Guy just bonks out. I forgot what mile. I want to say it was like maybe mile 18, 19, 20, somewhere in that are you range. Ta- are you talking about New York? Yeah. Yeah, so that was a super... You know what I'm talking about? He like he literally just fell on the ground. And like, yeah, that was in New York. Yeah. So I was there that day because I have athletes who are running that race. And when he came through, I... Do you know who it was? I don't know his name, but he was on... He was, I think he was from Brazil. Something tells me he was from Brazil. Yes, he was. You're right. And yes. he he just went out super hot. And I for for me... I think he went out. I don't and, think he won. Or I don't think he finished. I mean. No, he didn't. He dropped it, I think, 19 and a half or something like that. Yeah, Chibet or Chibet. He was the guy that won it. I He's, remember him. Yeah, he won. <sighs> 208. Yeah. And that's a, that's the slowest, in my opinion, that's the slowest out of the six world major courses. And he's still the winner's still running 208. Wow. Yeah, so the guy who dropped, he, he came through. I was standing at mile 12, and he was minutes ahead of second place. Yeah. Minutes ahead of second place. And... I thought maybe it was somebody in the non-binary division because they started early mm-hmm. and later found out that he wasn't in the non-binary division and had collapsed at 17 or 18, whatever, 19 and a half. This guy. Danielle Nascimento. Yes. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he's good for sure. He's definitely good. I think he just got a little ahead of himself because I think he felt maybe the weather was in his favor. That day, because it was like 75 on November 5th or whatever the date was, which was extremely hot for yeah, New York City. absolutely. And they did, I had athletes come through me, or come by me at mile 12, and they were, they were, they stopped and were like, there's not enough water out here. I was like, okay, take your time. You're here just to finish at this point. Yeah. Because it's, these are not ideal conditions. You're here to get the medal, get your star for the six world majors. I was going to say, so your expectation changes based on weather. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So could you potentially go into Tokyo and be like, there's like a monsoon today. I'm mean, not a monsoon, but you know what I mean? Like some, some like very off weather day or, or it ends up being 80 out and you're like, this is, I'm struggling. And yes. then you're just be like, 230 is not in the bag, but I could run a 250 and be happy. Yeah. So the first time I ran Boston, I, I felt I was in low 230 shape. Okay. And that was 2016. And the days leading up to it, once we got to Boston, they were like, weather's going to be in the 60s, maybe low 70s. And we train through the winter up here. And to make that drastic jump temperature training wise mm-hmm. from like 25 to 70, there, I mean, you've got to take, you've got to take a lot of things into consideration. You've got to slow your pace down, make sure you're hydrated, make sure you're 
listening to your body because you don't want to get to mile 20 on the Newton Hills and and just drop because you didn't do everything right. So if it's hotter, you have to slow down just because your body's pumping out or it has it's overheating more at that yeah, point? Yeah, I think, well, it really depends on the on the location. Because because Boston's in the spring yep, and we're a northern state, the weather's colder. So we're used to colder weather. When you, with, if you can't acclimate yourself to 70, you've, you've got to do certain things to kind of make sure you complete the course because you being my first Boston, I was like, I don't want to not finish because the history of the race. And that's for me, that's part of why Boston is so special is because it's the longest running road race in the world. Or maybe, maybe it's the longest running marathon year in and year out in the world. It's 128 this year coming. Yeah, it's wild. So I the night before, I had plans to kind of run 545 right from the get-go. And then seeing the weather, I was like, all right, I got to do something different. Maybe I slow my pace early to like 605 and see how I feel once I get through the Newton Hills. And if I'm feeling good at once I get through the Newton Hills, then maybe I'll start going. Got to the Newton Hills and it was so super hot. Still, like this is like mile twenty, you said. So the Newton Hills are mile sixteen through twenty or okay. seventeen through twenty-one, um, and they they're relentless. Where because it's they're not bad hills. It's where they fall in the race. Because the first 16 miles is rolling downhill and you just beat up your quads and your hamstrings and then you have to climb for four miles. It's just, so that was my thought process the night before. Okay, if I can get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, which is the infamous hill on the Boston course, it's the last little climb, and feel good, then I know I've got a, a, about two miles downhill and then it's flat for a while leading to Boylston. And I got to the top and I was actually, I got to the bottom returning Newton and I was already spent. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, today is not a two thirty day. I'm here. I want to finish this. So I got to make sure I'm doing the right things, getting the hydration, listening to my body, getting the nutrition. And when you say finish, I mean, I'm assuming you mean finish at what standard you've set. Like you're physically going to finish, right? Yeah. So like you could have slowed down to an eight, nine minute pace and you would have finished fine. Yeah, I would have finished fine, but I still at the same time want to want to run as fast as I can. Yeah. Because like I said earlier, like I want to go to these races and finish as best I can. So you but, mean finish, meaning I don't lo- lower my effort. Yeah. Gotcha. So, but listening to my body and making sure that I get to the finish line, because if I say, okay, well, if I back off, maybe 6.05 to 6.15 is still too fast. And I just kind of listen to my body and just back off a little bit each mile to make sure I get to the finish line. So what's the, what's the pace you need to get under 2.30? You said 5.45? Uh, so 2.30 is, I believe, 5.43 per mile for 26.2. Okay. So you'd want to start around 5. Like what, what, what would be, how would you split that up? Like in a perfect race, what would you be splitting? So I would probably go 5.45s through 10. And then try to go just under 530 through the next 10. And then then wow. hope I can hang on for 10K. Wow. So you'd be cooking on the second 10. Yeah. So what, what's a what's a race pace that you're comfortable running? Like if you, I guess like a half marathon, like what, what, what would be your pace on that? 
so my half marathon PR is five twenty seven pace or five twenty five pace. Wow. Um, I haven't really raced a half, like because most of my most of the halves I race are during training and they're just a workout. So I'm running at a certain pace instead of just all out racing it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, so if you for you to go under five thirty, when you say like. Like what puts you in? I'm under two thirty race shape potentially. Like, at what what needs to happen there, or what do you have to feel as an athlete to be like, okay, this is I I feel like I can do it right now. It's the workouts late in the training block. If I can hit certain paces and feel good, mm-hmm. then I can. I have a feeling that I can run fast. Did you you play? Obviously, you played sports and you did running. Did there's a couple times in my career? Again, this is as an ex athlete. Middle of the running athlete. So again, take it for take it with a grain of salt. Not not in a, not your level of uh uh you know running shape. So there was a couple times where I felt for me this is Galen comparing himself to old Galen. There was times where I'm like, I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. I've had that happen, um or best shape. I'm in like another. I feel like I'm in like a different in shape bracket if that makes sense. Like yes. I've like unlocked the door and I'm like at the next level for me where I'm like you know what? I'm just way better than I was a couple months ago. And it's, I've only had a few of those moments. Some of them depending was more like high school could have been like how I was running my breathing later. It was more of like general fitness. And so there's certain points where I'm like, like right now I'm like not good at all, but not consistent working out. But there's probably, you know, like I said, five times maybe in my life where I'm like, I feel like I'm in really good shape right now. Like, how often do you get that? This is on the Matt Madero scale. Every time I'm really training, like, I can feel it probably about week eight or nine. Okay. That I'm starting to get in shape. And by peak week, like, I'm in, like, I feel like with each training block that I've done, I've gotten in better shape. And your confidence gets more or I mean, higher? Yeah. Okay. So you, like, wake up and you're, like, a little more excited to run or what can I accomplish today kind of feel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, with Berlin... In 2021, like I felt like I was in really good shape about six weeks prior, really, really good shape. And then, is that too early for you, or is that good? It's maybe a little too early. Okay. But in the first few days of 2021, I hurt my knee snowshoe running. Okay. So I am a, a, a world class snowshoe runner. Um, I've been all over the world for that. Wow. So I was running up the New Land Trust in Saranac with some former high school athletes of mine, and. We were coming down a hill and my knee locked up and I felt that clunking noise of two bones clunking together yep. and it fell and immediately went worst case scenario. I just tore everything in my knee. Like I'm going to need to have surgery. I'm going to need to have rehab. I'm not going to be able to run Berlin. And fortunately, like everything ligament and uh, tendon wise was, was good, but I chipped off a piece of my tibia plateau. So I didn't get the, the first four months of 2021, I didn't get to train the way I wanted to. But then once I got into training, like it really ramped up quick and I could feel like I was getting in shape. And then about six weeks prior, I ran, I was out just doing an easy run and I could just feel, start to feel some tightness in my left hamstring. Yep. And it just kept getting worse every day. And then to the point where 10 days prior to the marathon, I just stopped running to let it heal up. So that way I knew I'd be able to perform well at the marathon. So again, snowshoe, I've actually heard of snowshoe running, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not very, uh, what is that sound? 
No idea. It feels. Like, I feel like somebody's got a walkie-talkie somewhere, and you're you might be picking up some of that stuff. I've never had that in my life. I feel like I'm on the old school. Remember as a kid, like you'd turn like different radios and like you'd hear like a truck driver on oh, yeah. it. And you're like, oh, yeah. shoot, go to like, yeah, yeah. go channel five. Um, go channel 13. Yeah, yeah. Just get out of here. Um, yeah. What is that? I think. You know what that might be? That that sounds like it could be the city police. Wow. I'm, you hear that? Yeah. That sounds. I like, wonder if that's picking up. I don't know if you can hear that, folks. They're like. It sounded like somebody was getting into somebody's car on the corner. It sounded like some some. What is, I've never. That is weird. You might be picking up some channels that you shouldn't be picking up here, Matt. I've done uh, what is this two hundred forty one episodes. I've never heard another person talking right here like that. Yeah, that was that was pretty close, crystal clear too. I wonder if that picks up. I'm gonna have to re-listen to this. Well, folks, if you heard that, I don't know what it is. Um, so snowshoe running. They're probably hearing our conversation. Like, who are these idiots talking about snowshoe running? Snowshoe running. Like you're pretty. So you run something like that. Yes. So when you're running in, a, so these are a little bit smaller snowshoes. These obviously aren't the big, uh, you know, the, 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 what is it like the wooden? Yes. They're, they're the, not the, that large. So the, the snowshoes we race in, they have to have a minimum surface area of 121 square inches. Okay. Uh, which isn't very big. So I have a size 12 foot, uh, and the, are, are they, you heel out like that the whole time? Uh, yes, they, wow. they're meant to kind of flop like that up and down. Um, there are some snowshoes that are heel locked. I actually have a pair, so they feel like they're not even on your feet. Um, but they're the, the size of them, the, the tip of the snowshoe is probably two or three inches in front of, in front of the front of my toes. And the tail is probably maybe two or three inches the back of my heel. So they're not very big snowshoes. They weigh, wow. they weigh probably, depending on the model and the brand, two pounds each, maybe. Tops. So it, it feels fairly heavy running with them. Yeah. There are, there are some that are, that are out there that are like a pound that wow. you don't really even feel. Does that include the shoe or is the shoe separate and you lock the, it in like a, like a ski yeah, boot so or something? I've, you just wear a normal running shoe. And oh, okay. You, there are bindings, or you can direct mount the snowshoe to your shoe by screwing it on, um, and to just make it that extra little bit lighter, because the binding weighs, I don't know, point twelve, wow, of a pound or whatever. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, is this? I was gonna say for so snowshoe racing. Is this something that do you enjoy this more than? Than uh, running on the road, I enjoy going fast. Is what I enjoy doing. Okay, so so this wouldn't be as fast. This is definitely not as fast. It's a it's a different type of workout. I enjoy it in the winter because it allows me to get off the roads for safety purposes. You know, off a treadmill uh, and off a treadmill. Yeah, like a treadmill. I don't like doing it. I'll yeah. do it if I have to, mm -hmm. but treadmills are not fun. Uh, so again, I go up to the new land trust living in Saranac. I go up there two to three times a week just to get my easy miles in the winter. Mm -hmm. um, your heart rate jumps super quickly. You get your body, your body temperature goes up just as quick. So you've, you've got to layer up to be able to kind of take clothes off. So I was going to say, how, how, how many miles would you run in snowshoes? Just uh, to like training or having fun? Depends on what I got to do that day. So I have 
introduced the sport of snowshoe running to my high school team. And in the wintertime when we're running indoor track and we're limited to what we can do, mm -hmm. I bring them up there one day a week during the week to kind of get out of the school, off, off the hallways. Mm -hmm. We're not running the same road every day just to give them something different. And what I do with them is I try to do something fun depending on how much daylight we actually have. So we play what I like to call manhunt. Okay. So I have them partner up for safety purposes. So that way, if, if somebody were to get lost, at least they have somebody with them. Yeah. Yep. Um, because it's very easily, you could easily get lost up at the, the new land trust. So then I'll let them go out two or three minutes in front of me. And I'll, then I'll start just tracking them down, looking at where their snowshoes went. Like, almost like I'm tracking a wild animal. So, um, like when you guys go out and run those, I mean, are you doing like five miles a lot? Is 10 miles a lot? So I have raced a 15K, which is 9.3. I think the farthest I've actually run in snowshoes is 14. And I'm assuming, like, is running 14 in snowshoes the equivalent of a full marathon in sneakers? I would say not quite. I'd say closer to like 20, 20 miles. Okay. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty like rep or, uh, similar you know i mean it's different obviously but i'm saying it's not like super different where it's like it's twice as hard yeah, as something i mean depend obviously depending on what you're wearing that day because if you're wearing a super heavy pair of snowshoes it could make it a little bit harder but if you're wearing a light pair of snowshoes that you normally would race in like i have a pair that's a very flexible plastic okay made by tsl and it's it's got a it weighs i think each snowshoe weighs less than a pound so I don't even notice them on my feet. Wow. And what about the strike? How's the strike compare? Uh, I t my running form doesn't affect how I strike on snowshoes. Like it's. I mean, do you feel that like the heel coming and hitting, like, or is it pretty uh, yeah, effortless? It's pretty effortless. You don't really feel it. Again, it's really about how your running form is, and I've I like to think I have pretty good running form. Mm -hmm. Um, so the snow, the tail of the snowshoe hits the ground first and then your forefoot hits and then your heel kind of hits. So the, this person right here, like form wise, is, is that a pretty good running form? Yeah, that's, that's a really good running form, especially for in snowshoes. So what, what would, what would you, cause I, the thing I'm looking at here and again, I, I, I know my running form sucks, but this right here, like it looks like his torso is very, very straight. Yeah. And is there any, like, what other technique are you looking? Because that's the main thing my eyes get drawn to. But, like, what's the main things that you'd be looking to in, um, I guess, just the form of this runner? Or what do you, would you consider good running form? So, uh, I like to say that good running form, you have, a, as a distance runner, you have a slight forward lead, not a whole lot. Okay. Um, upright is good, um, just because you're not putting a whole lot of stress on your, on your lower back. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Uh, you don't want a whole lot of knee drive. What that person right there has got is pretty good. So I'm going to go to, I just want some like running. Yeah. So you see how this one right here. In the, this red one? Of, yeah. That red one. It's kind of, it's not a 90 degree angle. Okay. It's more like maybe 85. So that you're kind of pushing yourself forward and not fighting. So when you, when it like lean forward, you're not leaning from the hip. You're kind of just your whole body. Yeah. Your whole body is kind of leaning. So you want like the foot you're pushing off from, you almost want to be as, as straight as you can from toe to toe to head. 
See how he's kind of... And that's your, you're talking about the, the trail foot. Yeah, the trail foot there. Gotcha. So, this, so again, the four things to hear, it says posture, arms, uh, bent knee, landing, and then high cadence. So when... When you're looking at running form, like when you say the slight bend, so this guy almost looks like his body's like falling forward. Are you almost like falling into your stride and like letting just your legs, kind of, I, I say pull. Like I've heard people talk about pulling the road with their feet. I've yeah. heard. So you don't, like I said, you don't want to lean too far forward. That that slight lean that that guy's got there is probably exaggerated. A little bit. I mean, for that person, it might work because everybody's different. Because um, you see that guy, he's a little bit more upright. I got to I got to find I want to I want to see a real person. Okay. Yeah, one right here or this guy down here in the bottom right. So that's a good form right there? Yeah, it's pretty good form. Like okay. he's 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 got a very 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 slight lean forward on his upper body. Not a whole lot of knee drive, not a whole lot of kickback on his tail leg. So um, when you say knee drive, what's knee drive? So it's the point of what you like getting your knee up when you're coming. So his lead leg, you don't want your knee too high. You don't want your hip at 90 and then your knee at 90, unless you're a sprinter. Gotcha. Okay. So as a distance runner, you want to have maybe a 45 at your knee, at your hip at most. Okay. And then maybe. And that's, that's leg to, it's hip down to your your front leg. Is hip, there that, hip, that, that hip to knee. So you're, so that where your hip joint is, you want to kind of be, 45 degrees headed down towards your knee. And this is when it strikes, front knee strikes, or on the way down? So on the way down. Gotcha. So once, as you're coming down, your leg is just naturally going to kind of straighten itself out. You want do want a slight little bend in the knee. Okay. Because the body's meant to kind of spring forward. Okay. With the muscles and everything. Um, so the one thing on that guy I, I'm not a fan of is his left arm kind of looks like it's coming across the front of his body. Okay. As long as it's not overly exaggerated, a little bit of crossover is fine, but you don't want to be twisting side to side. Okay. That's just, that's just energy that you're wasting. So your torso stays very straight. Yeah, you want to keep your torso very straight. Do you focus on that? Like don't move? Or like like a point of performance kind of thing during a race? Yeah, so I don't focus on it a whole lot. Um, in training, I do. Like I'll do a lot of core workouts. Gotcha. Just to kind of make sure it's that way. in race On race day, like everything is stabilized. Yep. So that way I'm not having to really focus on, okay, am I twisting? Yep. Uh, I can just run naturally. When you talk about the kickback now, so we're talking about the lead foot. So how far back does someone normally? So I've seen, I've seen people who have actually kicked their butt. Yeah. I, I feel like I see like professional runners and I feel like they got a big yeah, kick. So, so they've, they've come out in the last handful to a dozen years, whatever the case might be, saying that um, you don't want to have as high of a, a back kick on your push-off leg. You want to be pulling more up with your hamstring. That looks a decent form. Yeah, that's pretty good form right there. Okay. And she she looks like she's going to land on her midfoot, which is ideally where you want to land because the arch acts as a spring. Yeah, so talk about that. Sorry, you finish up the trail foot thought and then... So I I had a friend in high school who was a pretty good runner. Um, And again, his... Everybody's different. So his form worked for him Mm -hmm. and we didn't really want to change it. Or my dad, who was our coach, didn't want to change it Mm -hmm. because it worked for him. But they've, like I said, they found out in the last dozen years or so that 
you kind of want to have your hamstring coming up where so you're kicking more underneath your torso than behind you. When you say kicking, when so, you say kicking underneath, you're talking about like pulling so, yeah, the ground back. Yeah, pulling when you when your leg comes up, you want to have your your foot almost underneath your torso instead of behind you. Okay. Okay. I'm trying. I'm trying to think as like you're running, like, but I I, I don't. I've never had proper running training. So like when I'm running, I'm just like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not thinking any of this stuff, but I, I know there's such a technique here. I've, I've had a, I think I've had every single, who coaches right now at Saranac? Uh, Chris, Track and field. Chris Verkey and, and Brittany Swartz. Does uh, Mickey do it at all anymore? Oh yeah. Uh, Mike Castine is our throws coach. Okay. So I've had three of the four. Saranac people on. Yeah. So Verk was telling me about some running and training. Obviously, he's more like short distance and stuff, yep. but the, the technique is just incredible when you start to like really dive into it and have, you know the nuances and all the little yeah. intricate things of it. There's more to to the running form when you're a sprinter. Yeah. Than there is to a distance runner because distance runners, you just, you kind of, yeah, you can tweak the form a little bit, but you really don't want to change a whole lot what works for somebody. Well, I would also think too, because of the amount of repetitions and for the distance, there's a little, there's more energy saving probably things that you guys do versus a sprinter. Yeah. Because sprinter, a sprinter in theory, again, I could be totally wrong on this, could get away with improper form from a mechanical like safety kind of thing, but obviously it would affect the performance. Yeah. But you could, you know, if you're running a less than one minute race, like it's not going to really mess you up. If you're running for two, three hours, four hours, like... Yeah. That, that's a lot of pounding if you're not doing things correctly. Yeah. So a lot of times with distance runners, they do do form drills okay. to kind of correct any minor little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a coach, I, I'm i not a fan of trying to correct a whole lot in somebody's form because you're born to run that way. When you – okay, so when you – Let's say there's something you like. Is there something that you do that you're like, ah, probably not the best ideal thing, but I do it, and I'm. It doesn't really, like, it's not worth it to change. Yeah. So I, for me, I'm always kind of looking at my shadow when I'm running to see if there's anything I kind of tweak, and I don't know why, but I kind of have a, a little sway in my stride, so I just kind of sway back and forth a little bit. So not rotating, but I'm more not rota- leaning. Yeah, I'm leaning. Okay. And that just may be because I'm pushing off from one foot to the other, but I see other runners and they're just straight. And I'm like, I got to work on that. So I, okay. I'll spend a little, a like, little bit almost of time. like keeping your head still or yeah, something. Yeah, keeping my head still, watching the shadow, so that way I can kind of say, okay, my head is still, my shoulders aren't swaying back and forth. The foot strike is pretty symmetrical, mm-hmm. and I won't, I won't do it for too long because for me, I don't want to kind of injure something so if you do it in small, small little spurts hopefully hoping that over time that would that would change well, how uh, that's my next question like timeline wise if you're trying to implement something new like how long would it take that it becomes a habit or becomes just ingrained you're like i don't have to think about the head motion anymore or the or the leaning or so when i was running at plattsburgh state we used to do form drills all the time and it, it didn't take me very long to kind of change my foot strike it took okay. me. It took me a couple, maybe not even a whole season, because we were doing form drills almost every day. But form drills are only like five minutes of our day. Okay. Um, so, but I I noticed from high school to college when we started doing the form drills in college that I went from a heel striker to a midfoot striker. So is there? So go to the talk about the foot strike. So there's heel, 
arch or mid mid slash arch is there a toe strike there is a toe strike and you're more up on your toes and your heel doesn't touch so that's like a sprinter yeah so what what ideally the heel strike is where you want to be not the not or sorry the arch versus the, the heel yeah the midfoot they say is the best spot because uh when you land with the heel strike you're putting all that pressure on your ankles your knees your hips which could potentially lead to to injury so if, if you're going in and uh is the reason I always think like heel strike or not heel strike? I always think arch strike. If someone's doing an arch, you're just landing very flat footed. But yeah. Because because of the slight lean, it's really not. As yeah, you're flat. more you're more on the ball of your foot than the actual arch itself. Gotcha. Okay, so that makes more sense. Yeah, and they call that midfoot or for I would say more midfoot. So it allows you to hit, and then everything lowers. Yeah. And then you're you're are you pressing out of your heel or pressing out your toe? Pressing out of your the ball of your foot. So it's always the same. So you'll, yeah. you'll come back on your heel, but you'll rotate back up and press yeah. out. Gotcha. Okay. And so what, you were formerly a heel striker? Yeah. In high school, I was a big heel striker. Just poor form or was that just like natural? I think a lot of it had to do with strength, to be honest with you. Okay. Because I, yeah. I was a very tiny kid growing up. I hit a nine-inch growth spurt my sophomore year of high school. <laughs> How tall are you now? 6'4"? Yeah, I'm 6'4 now. So I was 9'4". November of my sophomore year of high school, and then by the time I went back my junior year, I was six one. Ooh, so it was a lot of a lot of time trying to let my muscles catch up with yep. the bones because bones grow faster. And there were days where I just couldn't run, and I was. It's it's not that I was I was weak. It's just that my muscles weren't there. It's like growing pains. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. What a. I was gonna say from a, a physical standpoint. Like, did you, in, in high school, were you just running? Were you doing strength training? Were you doing anything like, kind of like, uh, you know, an- ancillary work that was helping out? So, in high school, I kind of thought I knew better. And I wish I knew what I know now. Because I think I could have been a lot better. I was a decent high school runner. I've got athletes who are running much better than me now, and they're freshmen. Was that because your dad was a coach, maybe? No, I think it was because I thought I knew better. Okay, and it was it was more me. My dad is a fantastic coach. He. But I mean, I'm saying like you weren't. Was it something where you didn't listen to him as well as maybe because he was your dad, or do you think it was like no? Actually, I listened to him. I just in my head. I just didn't work as the way I should have yeah, worked. No, or, it was probably it was probably the, the a little the bit both. No, probably the former. Like okay. I I thought I just knew better, so I just didn't listen to him. Yeah. But in hindsight, he he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. He he's been around the sport since 1972. So, yeah, it's, things have evolved since 1972 in the sport and forms and technology and training methods and all that type of stuff. So I, somebody who has grew up a, around the sport of running, I just felt I knew everything already. And in hindsight, wish I had listened a little bit more because I think I probably would have done more strength training because I just, at that point, I felt it wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. So there were days where I would take a group of friends and we would just go play cards instead of weightlifting. And, and at what point did you get more serious on so I strength? Re- so I really didn't get serious about that type of stuff until I was in college. Okay. Um, did you I, have Brett? Was Brett a coach? So I went to a community college my freshman year okay. of, of college and then came back and ran for John Lynch, who okay. was there for five or six years and then transferred down to RPI. Okay. Um, so I had him as a distance coach, but Brett was our track coach for a couple of years. Gotcha, okay. 
Um, but I dealt mainly with John Lynch. Gotcha. Um, okay. And he he took me to a whole different level and made me even more interested in the sport of running because I was I had gained so much more success. Um. So regarding like uh, what type of training do you just uh, let's say not course training, but like weight training, what do you do for running? Like what kind of, do you focus on how, how often do you focus on it? You know, obviously is this more like, you know, I'm assuming not super heavy weight, but probably more like endurance space yeah, so, based on muscle fibers and stuff. So a lot of what I like to do is, um, low weight, high rep mm -hmm. because I don't want to gain a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that the, the strength is there and the endurance in my muscles is there. So that way I can get through a, a marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I also lift for a living cause I work at UPS in the morning as well. Yep. Um, so I'm lifting boxes for four and a half, five hours a day. So when you, so actually UPS, a lot of repetitive motion. Yeah. Do you focus on that when you're working? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I am. I'm very all about, okay. I don't want to be lifting with all my back. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, want to correct form because I don't want to injure myself. Because for me, UPS is my is my livelihood, mm -hmm. but it's not what I want to do. Like, yeah, absolutely. So I want to stay as healthy as possible, so that way I can do the things I want to do. So as I say, have you ever? Because I always f funny story. I hurt my I hurt my forearm like seven weeks ago, pretty bad. I heard it. I actually heard it while golfing, and I'm like, I don't know if I actually heard it because of golf. So I couldn't figure it out. Couldn't figure it out. Went to see uh, John Mahalan. He was working on it, and he and I still have an issue. And he's like, "Yep, it's this muscle right here." And he like pressed on it, and it felt like I was going in shock because it was like he hit such a knot. And then I was thinking in my head, "What did I do to cause my hand to have like? I mean, to the point it was like shaking, like almost like nerve shaking." Yeah, and it was. The only thing I can think of, it was repetition, low weight repetition, and I was, it's going to sound crazy, but this is what I was doing. I was weeding. Okay. I literally was in the front yard pulling weeds out, but you're going down, you're twisting, and you're yanking. So every time I went down and twisted, so yep. basically twisted externally and pulled, you can feel as I'm doing that, this muscle is just turning and pulling. Yeah. So what happened was I just overused that muscle got tight, went out and played golf on a really tight muscle, which you, that muscles, you know, it's one of the muscles you don't want to have tight when you're swinging the golf yep. club and just completely like shattered my hand. It felt like a gun shot my hand off. Like it, it was like such a, a sharp pain and it lingered for five weeks and then I redid it. And now I'm on like week two of like kind of letting it, but it was because of yeah. weeding, which is, it's crazy, but it's like yeah, this, it's a, you know, and I'm not a professional weeder. I'm just like pulling weeds out, you know, like it, just I'm like, oh, there's weeds. I got to yeah. pull them out. I don't know the best way to pull weeds out. So I'm just like hacking it. And next thing I know, I'm like, you know, everything's flared yeah, up in that it's form. It's amazing what the body can and can't handle. Yeah. And how quickly it can heal itself up. Yeah. Because I've I've been hurt for 11 weeks now. I, I haven't run all summer. So what what it, what hurt? Your, you said you broke your, your ankle. but So I rolled my ankle. I rolled. Yeah. I rolled my ankle and it ended up with a stress fracture in my tibia. Like roll, I mean, did you roll it running? You just like, yeah, I rolled fluke? it, I okay. rolled it running on, uh, the rail bed in Danamora. Okay. Um, I was just doing an out and back on the, on the rail trail up there cause it's flat and soft surface and about two miles in rolled it internally. It's kind of 
Oh, bent in? Yeah, bent in. Gotcha. And uh, felt something go about three or four inches above Ooh. my ankle, and I haven't been able to really run since. Um, so, so you're like, you see, like you said, you're, you're riding a bike now. Like the bike, is that just keeping your, you know, is that more for muscle, more for breathing, more for stamina, more for it's just a, to mentally a, say I'm still doing something? It's a lot of different things. Cause when I hurt my knee in 2021, 20, I went, I went insane because I couldn't do anything for six weeks other than work. And that Could point, you swim at all? They didn't want me doing anything. Yeah. So, um, I just started going insane. And so I found that I need to do something for my, my own sanity. Mm -hmm. Um, the bike helps with the cardiovascular system without putting a lot of impact on the, without on the joints, on the joints and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I just, I feel like I need to be moving because I've just been always on the go ever since I was a little kid. So like at this point, you're 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 ready to get back running. I've been probably ready. have been for eleven weeks. Yeah. Um. So, um. So when the other thing went like nutrition. So, do you have a pretty strict diet? Do you have something you follow regularly when you're trying to peak out? Obviously, there's in a kind of game day, um, a race day uh, nutrition. But do you follow a certain like nutritional plan? So for me, uh, when I'm running high mileage, mm -hmm. like I do when I'm training for world majors, it's all about just getting calories. Yeah. Um, and it's not cheap to eat healthy when you're trying to get calories. Mm -hmm. So bag of chips, Oreos, whatever, just to get calories in me. So that way I can start healing it back up. Yeah. They're not the greatest nutrients. Mm -hmm. Um, I will throw some veggies and fruits in there when I can, but leading like the last two or three weeks leading up to the race, I'll kind of hone in on what I'm eating and watching for sure. Um, just because your body's like a car, if you put bad fuel in it, it's not going to run well. Well, I was going to say, if you, uh, you know, you see like these guys that do, you know, triathletes or obviously everybody's heard about like Michael Phelps and what he used to eat and all these crazy things. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's what people get. Like I remember one time when I was like really tracking like macronutrients and stuff and I was like on, I probably tracked it. 99% of everything I ate was tracked for probably four months and I remember I got to the point where I had to keep upping, mostly it was carbs. You had to keep upping carbs. Like, I don't know, maybe every month I was adding like 50 car or 25 to 50 carbs a day or something. I forgot what the numbers were back then. Um, I just remember I ended at like, I was eating like 350 carbs a day with, with proteins and fats, obviously on top of that. Yeah. And uh, I think I was pushing like 3000 calories a day and I was losing weight. And I or like body fat and stuff. And I got to the point where I was like, I got to like put weight back on because I had and I was eating more food than I ever have in my life. But because I was eating the right proportions and the good stuff, like my body was just ripping. And I was working out regularly. My body was ripping through the calories. So I got to the point where like at night, I'm like, I need to eat like four servings of like shredded wheat cereal just to hit 350 plus carbs for the day. Just because like I, you know. It wasn't like I, you know, you're out and about, you're doing stuff. It's not like you're sitting down, like eating on like a Saturday where I can like plan out my meals. I was like eating what I could. Yeah. And at night you're like force feeding to get the numbers, but you would eat it and like your mind like, oh my God, this is so much food. And like, you know, you're going to gain weight and stuff. And I was, I mean, losing weight to the point where I probably could have had another 50 carbs a day and been totally fine. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're eating like hundreds of carbs throughout the day. So 
at one point when I was in college, I think we calculated it out that I needed like 3,200 calories just to maintain my weight. Yeah, it's every wild. Day. Or not 32,000. 3,200. Yeah, yeah. 3,200. So you probably had to have like what, 4,500 just based on training? Uh, in that ballpark? Yeah, probably in that ballpark. So yeah. when, and that's when I was only doing like 50 miles a week. Now that I'm doing 100 plus miles a week, when I'm. Do so you eat a lot now? Oh, yeah. Like. I'm always eating when I'm not running. Yeah. So I've I've got a bag of Doritos in my car because I haven't eaten lunch yet today. So I was like, hmm, I'm kind of hungry. I'll just grab a bag of Doritos knowing I was coming here. I didn't want to have a full meal. Um, but yeah, I've one point, I, I think it was during my first Boston, just out of curiosity, I had calculated out that I had 2,800 calories for dinner one night. Ooh. Just dinner. I mean, can you maintain that? Oh, the yeah. hardest part when you're is like getting food in. Like, I don't think people realize when you're when you're training and need to get it in, like that becomes a job. Yeah, like you're you're focusing on that every day of like well, numbers I, and amounts. And I I've, I've always been one to always eat a lot, so it doesn't really feel like a job to me. I feel like I could, I should have actually been eating more. You'd be a Joey Chestnut. Yeah, sign him up. <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> I was gonna say you better like hot dogs. Um, so, so yeah. So, what do you think right now, calorie wise? You eat uh, now that I'm not running. Like my body is weird because it knows when I'm not running and will tell me, "Hey, you don't need to eat as much." Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm right now probably just doing enough to maintain weight. Uh, so probably so, probably twenty eight to thirty two. Wow. Um, but once I get back into training, hopefully within the next four to six weeks, my body will know very quickly that I'm training again and mm-hmm. say, "Hey." And you start eating more, and my my mind just says, "Okay." So on ga- like race day, you show up. Let's say you're at, you know, one one of the uh, top six races there. Like, are you? What are you eating? Like, because they mostly take off in the morning, right? Yes, they're all they're all in the morning. So, what are you eating night before? What are you eating morning of? What are you eating during the race? What are you eating after the race? So my my go to. It really starts two days before. Okay. Is where I yeah, walk us through the whole thing. So two nights before, I'll have a big pasta dinner. Get the carbs, okay. get the carbs in me. Okay. Um, so that way it has time to get into the storage cells and make sure it's there. Um, then the next day, I'll have a normal breakfast, cereal, whatever is available. And then um, lunch, I'll have a sub, usually. So like, this is day before. Yeah, this is day before. Okay. So. Uh, day before, I'm having like a BLT, mm-hmm. or not a BLT? Yeah, BLT. Yeah, baconless tomato. No. <laughs> Club. Uh, Italian BMT from Subway. So it's okay. It, so it's the Italian, the Italian mixed with um, salami, pepperoni, ham. So it's got a okay. lot. Of, it's got a lot of salt. Because oh, I, gotcha. So I know the next day when I'm running the marathon, I'm gonna be losing a lot of that. And gotcha. I've read through my years of coaching that you've got to have that ratio of of salt to mm-hmm. water and i've kind of fine-tuned that that works for me okay um to kind of help that make sure that i have enough salt in my body to kind of absorb the water to keep me hydrated during a race um and then the night before i usually just i'm, I'm burger fries so i got protein and starch and then maybe some coleslaw so like like night before like like grease doesn't bother you no. 
Okay, because I know some people like they they don't want the grease yeah. or fried or anything like that. So again, it's all about the individual and finding out what works for you. And that's, yeah, that's the thing that I like about the sport of running is it it's an experiment of one mm-hmm. because everybody's so different. So what might work for me might not work for you for at any distance. So if I'm training for a five k, you're training for a five k. The morning of, I could have three bowls of cereal half an hour to 45 minutes before the race and be fine. But somebody like yourself may not be able to stomach the milk for running 5K and might see that cereal again. <laughs> um, sooner than they want. But yeah. the, uh, okay, so night before, say burger, fries, what time do you go to bed typically night of? Depends on what time the race starts. So okay. Boston starts a little bit later. I think that starts at 10, so don't have to really get up as early. Um, but for, like, New York, it starts a little bit earlier, so, you, like, I wanted to be in bed 9, 9.30 okay. because you've got to get up at, like, 4. Because for me, it's really two nights before is the important night for sleep. Gotcha. Um, because the night before, as long as you're just resting, your mind's going to be thinking about so much, like, okay, I want to do this at this point in the race. I want to make sure I have my gel at this mile marker um, just to make sure that late in the race, hopefully everything is played out the way you want it to and you can run that fast time. So you wake up in the morning. Do you have any morning routine that you do prior to a race? Uh, I always have a banana for the potassium Mm -hmm. and then uh, a bagel, just a plain bagel. It's usually sesame. Um, no, not toasted, no cream cheese, no butter, just a straight up plain bagel a few hours before. And then I make sure I'm staying hydrated going probably about an hour and a half before. Like, I mean, I'm hydrating the whole week Mm -hmm. to make sure I'm properly hydrated, but it's about timing because the same time you want to be hydrated. You don't want to be stuck in a porta potty as the gun's going off. You want to make sure that everything has... You've done your final preparations, so that way you're on the line when you should be. Um, so then, how long? What's the last point you eat before a race? Usually an hour and a half. And then when you show up, do you have anything? You mentioned gels, but is there anything that you? Is this stuff that you keep on you while you're so, running? Yeah. So I have an ambassadorship with Goo Energy. Okay. Um, they're a electrolyte company, um, so they have. Gels, chews, uh, stroop waffles, um, and I found that for me the the goo works because it's easy for me to get down. Um, and I've also found that there's a certain flavor that works for me because I cannot do the aftertaste of everything. Mm-hmm. So, like you see up here on the screen, you've got all these different flavors. You got like strawberry banana, jet blackberry, salted watermelon. I cannot do any of those on race day. So they have a brand or a, a flavor called Tastefully Nude. Which it's plain. It's just plain. So it gotcha. pretty much just tastes like sugar. And it leaves really no aftertaste. And I found that that's what works for me. So I take them at certain times. Mm-hmm. And I do something differently than most people do. A lot of people just take them all at once, the whole packet. I spread mine out in smaller gulps over a two-mile duration of a race because I find that it's easier on my stomach, and it works for me. Do you, I would think too if it's um, 
It could be a mental thing too. I feel like almost like a timer for you. Yeah. So like a metronome, like I have it on every, whatever it might be, half a mile, quarter of a mile. So I, I don't really, during that time period of two miles um, for my first gel, I don't really say, okay, every quarter of a mile I have to take it. I just know from miles six to eight, I have to take one. And then miles 15 to 17, I take one. And then miles 21 to 22, I take one. And if I don't have the whole packet, by if I don't have the whole packet in at the mile twenty-two mark, I toss it. So I do take the whole packet from six to eight and fifteen to seventeen. And then if I only got half of the packet done, so you always carry three on you. Yes. And do you put the? Is, do you have a pocket or? So I have a little pouch that kind of built in the shorts. Uh, I don't like to put them in the shorts. I have a uh, a Nathan like belt. It has like a little pouch on it. Okay. That expands. So yeah. it hold it holds all the gels. It's kinda like, it's kinda like a slim fanny pack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a very, very tiny fanny pack. Gotcha. And that adds probably zero weight to anything. Yeah. yeah. The only thing that really adds weight is the gels. And they're not really that heavy. They weigh like point two of an ounce or something like that. How um how what like what's the nutritional one in like let me see, nutrition label. I just want to see kind of what your uh, the nutrients are and stuff. Birthday cake is that is that good enough to look at? Yeah. Any of these? Uh, probably, I believe they're all the same. About a hundred. Yeah, yeah, they're all about a hundred. I think they're they have a series of Roctane flavors, mm-hmm. which have more caffeine and more calories. But I think they're regular gel flavors. Twenty so twenty one grams carbs, one point grams of fat, zero protein. Calcium, 30 milligrams. Sodium, 50 milligrams. So some of these are salt added. I think I was looking at like salted. Yeah, some of them have added salts to them. Okay. Because again... Salted caramel energy. Let me just check this one. So 125, so a little bit more. Yeah. And this one's zero fat. So I'm assuming you don't want fat, right? You don't want the... Like you don't want... You want these to digest fast? Yeah, you want them to be able to get into into your system as quick as possible. Gotcha. So these you just rip off. These are easy to eat. These are like go-gurts almost. Like yeah, they're squirting them. Yeah, they're so, things. Yeah. So when you get done a race, so I should say three is you found is the sweet spot. Yeah, for me, it, it really all depends on how long you're going to be out there. Because I have athletes who are three thirty to four hour marathoners. They may want another packet or two, so they may gotcha. go five. Gotcha. And now the, the guys that run at the elite level are they eating? Are they taking packets at all, or are they just sprinting for two hours? No, they take packets. Do they do? Okay. Yeah. So they have. Each one has a different sponsorship. They have there's different brands. So are they doing the same thing? It's it's usually on them somewhere, just very discreet. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's usually on them. Um, sometimes they'll be so they have the elite runners are allowed certain aid, like water stations. They have specific water stations. They cannot take from the general popula- population water stations. Really? Okay. Yeah. So hmm. they may have gels attached to those water bottles, so they don't have to carry them. And they, so they'll pick what, maybe their first water bottle up at mile five and their goo is attached to that water bottle. So that way they'll be able to take it instead of having to worry about carrying it on them. And they grab it on the fly and they're eating it. Oh yeah. They're, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So what, what do you, when you get done the race, like, what do you, like, are you crushing like a pizza? Like what, what, what's, what's your go-to like celebration meal? So it really all depends on where I am. So in, Meaning where you are, like location-wise, yeah. or physically, like how well, you feel? No, well, both. 
Okay. So, but you mean more location? Yeah, like more location. Gonna, okay, gotcha. So after Chicago in 2019, like deep dish. Oh, we went deep dish. Yeah, I we went know. deep dish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we had to wait a while for it, but I mean, you're in Chicago, you got to get deep dish, and you didn't want. It, we definitely didn't want it before because it probably wouldn't have sat very well in our stomach, but it was worth it. So that so it's usually something big, like yeah. You're, so you're bound in food. So when I went over to Japan in 2020, right before COVID, for the Snowshoe World Championships, after okay. the, after so the cool. race, after the race, when we were back in Tokyo, um, I tried sushi for the very first time. I've never had sushi really before or after. It was and in Japan too. It was in Japan. So you've never had sushi like just even local. That's wild. Yeah. I love sushi. It's one of my favorite. Things. I'm not a big. I'm not a big seafood guy. Uh, but I figured I'm in Japan. Did you like it? Oh, it's delicious. But we haven't tried it since. Why no. not? Because it's it's like I feel like it's not going to be the same. Like it'll probably not. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was so good. Like I, my biggest fear. Of, well, how, how'd you get it? Did you get a roll? Did you get like a I got, jury? I got a salmon roll. Salmon roll. Okay, it was just, a roll. Okay. Yeah, just a salmon roll because gotcha. I knew what what it was. I could like could read the ingredients and it was like. Okay, I can, at that point, because like I said, I'm, I've never really been a big seafood guy. So I started eating salmon probably about six or seven years ago because I know the benefits of it. Yeah, and That's so funny. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. While I'm here, I'm going to get sushi in Japan. The, the uh, I can't believe you, had, you haven't had it since. Like, Well, I'm, when I plan on, I'm planning on having it again when I go back to Japan. Um, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's like saying I went to Italy and had pizza. Like, I feel like, you know what I mean? Like you went to like the homeland of it. Like yeah. it's, it's should be better. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I've been to Italy and there's some pizza here in the U S that's better than a lot of the pizza I, in Italy. I, yeah. So I went to Italy too. The, I did, we enjoy, or uh, we were in, uh, kind of near Pompeii. Okay. And, uh, I just remember the pizzas they rolled out. We were on like a school trip, senior year. Yeah. Senior year of high school. We're all sitting there, and they dropped. There's like six of us at table. They dropped like, they brought out two pizzas. I'm like, oh, that's that's just good, decent enough for all of us. But I'm like, pizza looks good. Yeah. But it was like thin, thin, thin crust, super good uh, toppings. And I like thin crust pizza. I'm not a big like thick. Um, I like deep dish and like thin crust. I don't like the uh, kind of like the generic one you go get and it has like the like the doughy, a lot of dough. I don't yeah. like that. I like toppings. I like it thin. So all of a sudden they came and brought four more pizzas out. So we each had our own pizza, which yeah. was, you know, I would say it was well over. It wasn't as big as a large pizza typically around here. It was probably like a 14 inch pizza. And that was absolutely incredible. But it was the ingredients it was thin crust, but it was just like the, there wasn't a ton of cheese either. It was like, it was like a marinara sauce or some type of red sauce. They actually had basil leaves on it. And I want to say it was. Uh, so you got the margarita. It was like a margarita. Yeah, I mean, they didn't call it that over there. I yeah, think yeah. they just called it a cheese pizza or whatever it was because they had almost like um, – it wasn't provolone. It was mozzarella cheese, but they had like slabs yeah, was, of mozzarella. Was, yeah, that's how they do it over there. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, that's good. So I when I went over there for the Snowshoe World Championships in 2019 – Where was that? Like up in Milan so, or Torino? Or? So we flew into um, Rome. Da Vinci? Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. And then we – we stayed a couple of days in Rome, and then we went north to Verona. Okay, yep. We were in Verona for a couple of days, and we actually took a day trip back down to Flor- uh, to Florence and Pisa? Uh, Pisa. Pisa, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we went down to Pisa. We just stopped in Florence. Um, I wish we had because I later found out that that's where the Statue of David is, and I would have liked to have seen that. In Florence, yeah. Yeah, so didn't really do my research. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
and that's that's how I like to travel. I just like to kind of not have any plans. I like to just go on yeah. a whim. Zero expectations. So uh, those snowshoe world championships were about an hour and a half north of northwest of Verona in a small little town, and uh, so we did when we did our day trip to Pisa, we went to the tower. And then right away went to get pizza afterwards because we had a thing where we were going to, because I went with some of my former high school athletes. Um, we were going to try a pizza in every different city we went to. So That's great. So, and we, we determined that we couldn't have the same style of pizza. So I could, if in Pisa I had the, the vegetarian pizza, okay. I couldn't have it anywhere else. See, I would have thought you just would have stuck with the same one, like apples to apples. Like, give, well, give me your whatever your basic one is. Little variety, okay. Little variety. I mean, you gotta enjoy yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there were four of us that we were traveling together, and uh, so we kind of took turns. So, like, I would do vegetarian one time, and then the next time, one of my friends or one of my former high school athletes would do the vegetarian, and I would do the meat lover or whatever. Um, but yeah, I the when I tried the vegetarian, it had like cucumber. On That's it. different. It was different, and it didn't really taste all that great. You know, is it, have you ever had a dill pickle pizza? I have not. I've had that. It's it's different. It's it's not bad. It's just different. It's not something I would I would go to. Like I love ham and pineapple. Like some people don't like pineapple on pizza. I've always loved ham and pineapple. The salty and the sweet. It's great. So you're one of the few. Actually, I've, I was even told there is better off to get a bacon. Or, no, no, pepperoni and pineapple because it's got more salt. Yeah, yeah. Than than the uh, than ham. So I mean, I like that, but the, like. Again, yeah. I'm also good with just cheese and pepperoni. Like, I like basic. I don't like a lot of, like, super... I do like Supreme here and there. Never, I don't really like vegetable pizza. I don't really like meat lovers. It's just too extreme. I like kind of, like, basic and more in that middle ground. Yeah. Except pineapple and yeah. uh, and ham. So, what was the best pizza? Venice. Uh, uh, yeah, Venice. We did a day trip after the race to Venice, and then we had a guided tour. And during the guided tour, I snuck into uh, a little pizza shop. And they had a very thin crust pizza, yeah, like actual like pepperoni. I was like, oh, this is the most delicious pizza I think I've ever. And had. it's clean. You eat the whole thing, you feel great. Oh yeah, I only got like one slice because we. I didn't want to lose track of my tour group because. Oh, this is mid tour. Yeah, we were oh, mid tour. Oh. Like I, they were. They kept going. I was like, I'm gonna go in here and get a slice of pizza real quick. And we had these little head devices to kind of translate what the. Yep. Yep. Like a little, yeah. yeah. So. If he got too far away, the they, it, it looked like this. Yeah, so they lost lost connection, and I was like, "Uh oh!" So I was I was hoping that he just would stay close enough so that way I could kind of make sure that the connection in my headphones was there, so that way I could be able to find them. That's it. That's exactly what it looked like. Yeah, that's so. I had like the little basil leaves. Is that margaritas? Yeah, what they call it. I believe that's what they call it. Okay, that yeah, that I mean, it was it from. And that that might actually be some of the best pizza I've ever had is the is the margarita. Just yeah, and well, the crust remember was kind of like I want to say like bubbled a little bit. Yeah, but it was thin. Like you bite into it, it was like it was crunchy, but yeah. it was like it tasted so good with with everything else. But yeah, that was about the the look and feel of it. It doesn't. If you were to look at that now, you'd be like, "That's a pizza." But I feel like the way we make pizza over here, it's probably a little bit more like probably looks better over here than yeah. over there. That doesn't look great. The aesthetics it, of the pizza over here is definitely... Yeah, they upped it a bit. But I, I think from a quality standpoint, yeah. these are tough to beat. I'll tell you, some of the best food I've ever had is from Europe. 
Like so after after that race that year in Italy, we had a we were at a bed and breakfast, and they mm-hmm. as part of the deal we had uh, breakfast and dinner every night for like five days, and then on race day they didn't offer dinner because there was a like a athlete celebration afterwards, okay. so they gave us a, a breakfast and a lunch, and okay. so after the race we all everybody in the U.S. group that we were traveling with came back to the Airbnb and they had. On the on the menu, boiled boiled meats or pickled meats or whatever it was, and okay, this is it in Italy, in, in just north of Verona, and so I'm eating the pickled meats, and I get done. I'm looking around at everybody else in the U.S. contingency, and there's like two little slices of the meat because it was different meats, and I go, "You're not going to eat that?" And one woman turns for me to me from New Hampshire, and she goes, "You'd realize that was cow tongue, right?" I was like, nope, but it was delicious. The whole time you were eating it? The whole time I was eating it. Like, I had no idea. Really? What's it taste? I mean, just like meat? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It, it was it had a pickled flavor to it, so I'm not sure if it was boiled or if they just added a lot of salt. So, so we typically get cow. Like, so we, um, and I'm trying to think, was it, was it cow tongue, pork tongue? It might have been pork. What would be when you get like liver? What's that from? Is that from pork or is that from a cow? I think that's from from a pig. Okay, so which makes sense. I think we had pig, and then there was a tongue, and then I feel like there was there wasn't like a foot or anything weird like that. But I tried the liver one time, and it was gross. I don't know if it's how I cooked it. It just tasted awful. Yeah, liver is one of those things that you you I, either I threw them all out, yeah. and then there was tongue, and I didn't try it because like oh, that thing was like liver. So that I. I'll be honest. I usually try everything, and that one I I sh- I, I shunned because of the name. Which yeah. had it been like you and been like this is freaking great. Remember back in the day? Did you ever have frog legs? No, I've so growing up, I was very picky with my eating. So very, I used to eat frog. I I actually like frog legs. So I know people think it's it wasn't, weird, but it wasn't until Italy that I was I became more open to trying things. Like I still don't. I'm not a big red meat eater. Okay. Um, but I'll I'll eat it more now than I had prior to Italy. Like, I was very, very particular with what I ate. See, I, I, man, this is wild. Like, I, like, obviously, people are like, what do frog legs look like? They yeah. literally look like fried fr- frog yeah. legs. Like, it's, I, sorry, it's not a uh, an appetizing look, but that's what they look like. Or you can get them grilled, too. I mean, I, it's weird because you obviously see them and you're like, that's disgusting. Yeah. But Looks like a lot of them are deep fried. The, I remember having the ones that were deep fried. I mean... That one looks more of like a rub. Yeah. This one right here. Maybe a barbecue? That's, I don't know. But isn't this weird though? Like the look is weird. It's like when you get octopus or yeah. like squid or something. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to make these look prettier because they're in the shape of a, fr- basically think of a frog cut off. Well, they're, they're, I believe they're a French delicacy, aren't they? I, well, I think so. Yeah. I think there's spots where these things are, are, uh, I mean, you got to think too. Like, I know it's weird, like frogs. It's in animal meat. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you eat chicken all the time yeah. or pork or whatever. You eat meat. You eat those stuff all the time. You don't even think twice like it's a pig, it's a cow, it's a whatever. It just, just happens to be in the shape yeah. of a little animal. Yeah, yeah. That um, you wouldn't necessarily. And, it's like going to India and trying crickets. I would try them. I, so, th- I got to say, too, full disclosure, when I went, though, they were never presented like this. Yes. They were presented with like a th- basically cut in half. So, you basically – it looked like a chicken wing because it was just the leg. It was okay. one leg. So, again, it – um, sorry, folks, if that was too gruesome for you, but 
it, it was basically like that, but if you cut it down the middle and just had like this one, like here, if I can get a pointer here, it was basically this. So it kind of looked like a modified chicken wing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But they tasted great. Like they just, it just it tastes like you're having like a just a different flavor chicken wing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I think if I was in France, like because it's a French delicacy. Yeah, why not? Like I would try it. I mean, I don't, I don't know. That's probably the weirdest thing I've ate that I can think of. Remember, I've had a rabbit before. I thought that was kind of weird. I had a. Was it bison? Oh, bison's delicious. Bison's great. Oh my think, god! I don't think it was. So there's a there's a a bison place that sells meat down off of exit 29 that i found okay. a few years ago when i was trying to pound out a lot of high peaks okay and like every time i'm down that way like i stop in because i just i want bison meat because of the the low fat that they have yeah it's very lean yeah very very lean um i mean that's again it's in the shape of a rabbit that one's different but i i i had it wasn't uh yeah, it was something like that. It just looked like it was just meat that was grilled. Almost looked like ribs. Yeah, that. I mean, this looks really good. It looks like some kind of barbecue spice. Yeah. It's almost like Kansas City barbecue. This is... Uh... That one's a little different there. Yeah, it almost looks like a tomahawk steak. Yeah. But it was good, I think. Um, yeah, you get some of these foods you just don't think of, and then you have them, and you're like, they're actually pretty darn good. Yeah. And of course, when you think the entire world, like, there's a lot of, like, Especially when you get to like different cultures and stuff, they have a ton of different food. And you yeah. show up and like, so you go to Asia, they're gonna have different food there, and you try it and like this actually tastes pretty yeah. good, you know. And I'm sure there's weird stuff. People come over here and like hot dogs. I'm like, oh, I don't know the hot dogs. Like, yeah, that's probably the off the top of my head. That might be the weirdest one. There was a one I had up. It wasn't bear. What was it? I had it in Lake Placid. It was it was it was, it was definitely fatty. It was a fatty meat. Hmm. I want to say it was bear meat. It was something. It could have been. It's, uh, I feel like it was something different. It wasn't elk. Um, man, it might've been bear. It, it was a fattier cut. I remember there being a lot of like marble, a lot yeah, of, a yeah. lot of like, uh, you had to cut away. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's yeah, I don't, sauce or if that's for me, it's, I don't like that, that fatty texture. Like I love a ribeye, but then sometimes you get it when I'm like, yeah, yeah. like that's why sometimes prime rib, I don't, cause prime rib is supposed to be fairly lean, but I always find it's like, there's so much. I don't know. I'm just not a huge prime rib guy. Yeah. It's always, it's never been my, uh, I'll eat it, but it's not my favorite. Um, well, what's your thoughts on people that do two things, ultra marathon people, which I don't even know what the distance is on that. That's like races at a hundred plus miles. So ultra marathon is anything over a marathon distance. So as soon as you hit 22, uh, 26.3, technically it's, really? it's an ultra marathon. So I actually, I had a woman compete in the Twisted Branch 100K this past weekend in her first 100K, which is supposed to be supposed to be 62. Okay. And it ended up being like 64 and a half. Um, I, I give props to those people. Like it's a, it, their mentality is on a whole different level than I'm at right now. Um, at some point, yeah, I'll try it. Um, but right now I'm... I'm all about going fast and just let me out on the road and, and let me fly. So someone that's running an ultra marathon, like let's say the 62 mile, do you know what they're hitting roughly for splits? Uh, so she started out pretty strong. Um, she was probably averaging like 10 to 12 minute miles. Okay. For and that's, first... that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay. Considering it was her first one. Um, and she got to mile 40 and 
I think because she went out a little bit quicker Ooh. the first 20 miles or whatever than she really wanted to, it started to catch up with her. And by mile 60, she was running, running, and I use that term loosely, um, 18 minutes, miles. But it's not flat. They typically do terrain. Yeah, so it's usually up and down. So she had, yeah. had 10,000 feet of elevation gain over... Um, over the course of her 62 miles. And it's depending on where you go, like the, the terrain is different. So like you go out West and you run those hundred Ks or hundred milers out West. They're not, their trails aren't as technical as the trails we have here in the East. So, okay. so if you go hike a high peak, there's it's more dense over here. Oh yeah. There's it's, it's more dense, but it's also more Rocky. Like a lot okay. of their trails don't have that same amount of rocks that we have here. They're more defined too, right? There, right? Like, I mean, if you go out west or something, you're climbing the trails. The trails are a little bit more defined. Yeah, right yeah, they're they're easier to tra- uh, traverse. Yeah, yep. so it makes running those bigger ultra marathons like Hard Rock Hundred Miler or Western States they they tend to be a little bit quicker mm-hmm. because of the fact that there is really no technicality to it. There is some in regions. Um, but if you look up the Western States winner or world record or record, whatever it is, it's like... Tw- What's it four- called? What's the race called? Western, Western States. 100? Yeah, 100. So the the I think the record was set last year or this year. It's like 14 hours. It's over here. Course records. 1409 for 100 oh, miles. Oh, sorry. I was looking at the 2000. Sorry. That's fine. It's it's roughly the same. This 2023 20, results, the guy ran 1440 for a hundred miles. That's 14 hours and 40 minutes, a hundred miles. That's like two forty per, per marathon, wow. which, which breaks down to like six fifteen per mile. And this is, this is on trail. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. And they, they like, they cross, they cross streams they're up over mountains in the Sierra Nevadas. What, what's your uh, what age do you think runners peak at? So when how, I was like, how old are you now? 38? Thirty eight. I just turned thirty eight. Thirty eight. Okay. Uh, on Friday. Um, oh, happy birthday! Yeah. Late, late birthday, I guess. Yeah, thank you. Um, so when I was when we were growing up, the the ideology was that men peaked in their late twenties, early thirties, and women peaked in their mid to late thirties. But they're finding now that men are now peaking later in their mid to late thirties. Like Elliot Kipchoge just broke the world record marathon time last year as a 38 year old. Well, I, I mean, I'm looking at these right here and that's why I asked you, I'm like, you must be coming on peak. Cause this looks like peak is almost late thirties based on this. Yeah. So I, like you actually might be the median. On yeah. So with, with ultra marathoning, the, I feel like the older you get, the better you are because of okay. the fact that it's more experience based because Somebody who's just coming into the sport of ultra marathoning doesn't have a whole lot of experience on how to go out slower or when when he should he or she should be eating something and what they should be eating. It's it's all a learning process with endurance running, which is which is the cool thing about it. Um, but yeah, these wow, that's wild. Have you ever seen the uh, the Berkeley Marathon? Yes. Yes, I actually had a, a runner, a former athlete, open athlete that I used to coach. She actually did it 
last year, I think. Or oh, the Barkley. Sorry, Barkley. Yeah, the, the Barkley Marathon. It's, have you ever seen the documentary on that? I've never seen the documentary. Oh my God, it's wild. But it's a huge thing. Like in the running world, it's a huge thing to watch every year because of the, how it's run. Like I've heard that like the race starts when the race director lights up a cigarette. That's, it's true. You got to watch the documentaries. There's a couple of them. I saw one. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert because I think they've run it for like 30 something years and they've only had like 20 something people finish. Yeah, they... It's, Over the last couple of years, though, they've had a, they've had a lot of people finish it. They well, actually, I mean, relative to the amount of people, so relative to the amount of people that actually finish or start it, I think they said only thirty five people start, and the amount of people that finish is like in the single digits. Yeah, so it's like one, two, or three probably a year. Well, tops. that's that's kind of like none. that's kind of like the Spartan Death Race. So I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that one. How long is that one? So I don't think there's a set distance, but the obstacles you have to do, the, the challenges you have to do okay. are different. So it's I think it might be a 24-hour race. Um, and you have to, like, the first year that they had it was the year that I won the first ever Spartan race. And I think they, if I remember correctly, they actually even invited me to do it. Um, but... So what it is, it starts at like four o'clock in the morning and you have to sprint up this hill and at the top of the hill. Is this the one in Killington? No, this was, this was in Vermont, but it wasn't in Killington. I don't think so. You sprinted across this road, a dirt road up this hill and at the top of the hill was a bunch of stumps and your bib number was stapled to the stump. You had to unearth the stump and carry the stump with you until a certain point in the race. Whoa. Yeah, so then another point, another part that I remember specifically is they take the chain off your bike because you're supposed to have a bike. And they put it in a plastic bag with your number on a bib number or somehow they have your number on the bag. And they throw it in a river. And you have to go into the river, find your bag, put your chain on your bike, and then bike to a certain point. What's this called? It's called the Spartan Death Race. And then there was another... The other one that I remember specifically was you had a can, like a a soup can, a match, and an egg, and you had to boil the egg. You had to start a fire, get water, boil the egg, and eat the egg. So what was the? I mean, the the point of this is it's more of a mental thing than anything. Okay, I was gonna say this yeah. is like it's it's more it's like a pseudo race, but you're just trying to yeah. So to. I just recalled another one of the things I did. So to end the race, you had to hike up the small mountain. And at the top of the mountain was a list of, I think the first year it was like the first 10 presidents. You had to memorize the list oh. in order. Come back down to the bottom of the mountain, recite it in order. If you got it wrong, you had to go back up to That's the top. That's nuts. Yeah. That's actually probably the hardest one. Yeah. Unless you're really good at memorizing. But it's like, I think it's the last one. It's like the, it's... At that point in the race, you're just so mentally just like, oh. I want to get this over with. Well, you got to bring your own stuff. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So you have to. You have, Splitting axe. Yeah. So you have to carry all this stuff. Oh, when they say time. sleeping bags, that gets me. I mean, I'm assuming you. So people carry all that shit. Yeah. Four Chippehoy cookies unbroken and uncrumbled. There's probably something that they had to do with those Chippehoy cookies. Maybe they had Two a. Two personalized golf balls and golf tees. So maybe they had a. For instance, they have to go the entire race without those Chippehoy cookies falling apart. So you have, if you put them in your bag, you've got to be careful what you're doing. 
that could have been it. Like I, every year I think there's something different. I don't, I'm not sure if they still do this race anymore, but I know 12 or 13 years ago, they, they were doing it. Wow. No, I thought I just saw 2023. Yeah. So the winter death race. Oh yeah. That, that might be why they need the sleeping bag because they're probably, it's probably a multi-day thing where you have to, you're going to have to camp through. So is this endurance races, Spartan races, trail races? God, they have a lot now. Yes. They have, they have certainly expanded their, their... Is, is death rate. Like what's considered the hardest one, the death race. I would say, yeah, the death race is probably the hardest one. Cause I know the beast, that's the one in Killington. Yes. So the, the, the difference between the sprint, the, the, the beast, and there was one other one there, um, is really the, the length of the race. The obstacles usually the distance to obstacles ratio is usually the same. Hmm. But that's the one that's at the that's actually Killington Mountain every year, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So you you've never done those. So I've done that one Spartan race and that one Spartan race only. Yeah, that's it. One I'm, for one. I'm a thousand. Yeah, I'm you're in a thousand right now. I doubt anybody else can say that. So there was a point early on, like, so I, the first one happened in 2010. So I think maybe like 2012, there was a guy, his name was Colby Howe or something like that. Oh, there's, that's a lot of obstacles. 20 obstacles for 5K? Yeah. So it's like every, like, yeah, 10th of a mile, if that. Yeah, so. Or a little bit more than that, I guess. It was like every quarter of a mile, there was an obstacle. So in 2020, there was a, there was a challenge that if you won all the races that they had on their schedule, that they, you got like an extra like ten thousand dollars prize money or but something. But you had to win like the, the long one, the short one, the medium. All of them. Like they had like 12, 12 things on their schedule, twelve races on their schedule, and if you won every single one of them, there was like a ten thousand dollar prize bonus or whatever. And this one guy, Colby Howe, good runner, but his PRs on the road weren't as fast as mine, and aren't as fast as mine. So. I, I kind of called him out. He's like, well, why don't you come race me? I was like, I'm kind of in the middle of marathon training right now. I'm not doing that because I don't want to get hurt. Because, I mean, I'd hate to do a Spartan race and break fracture my femur or whatever trying to do this and have to take multiple years, years to heal. So what's a trifecta? Uh, I think the trifecta is doing all three race distances. This guy's got 105, so he's done that 105 times? Yeah. So is that just the... Well, they can't be... So they offer, obviously, more than once a year. Oh, yeah. They they have calendars for each different distance. Wow. This is wild. Yeah, and they, they're now global. Wow. Yeah, it's... it's, it's really has taken... It really took off really quickly, too. Yes. Obst- obstacle racing in the early 2010s became a huge thing. You had the Tough Mudder, you had the Spartan Race, you had... Um, oh, Tough Mudder's a part of this. Tough Mudder is its own brand. It's its own obstacle race brand. But it looks like it, it's... Oh, so it's not merged with... I don't think so, unless they've done it recently. I feel like they did. It's on the same website. Or there's a link from this website. So maybe they have merged. Maybe they, they bought uh, Tough Mudder out. So what's the difference between Spartan and Tough Mudder? There really isn't a difference. Okay. I didn't opinion, think there was, but in wasn't my opinion, sure. I've never done a Tough Mudder, so I think the Tough Mudder isn't quite as hard as the Spartan races. I think I'd be down to do one of these. 
Like I think I, they're fun to do. Like I highly recommend it if you're like you can go with like a group of people and just kind of like yeah, hang they, out and just have fun. Yeah, and, it's so unless you're really down like a serious obstacle horse racer, racer like these this would be the way to go. This the color runs, um, Ragnar relay races. Those are like big things in the running community because they're not like hey I it's all about time. It's about more the camaraderie of the event mm-hmm. and. I enjoyed doing the Spartan race when I did it. What about uh, what about the guys that run or guys or gals that run like marathons every day? Have you seen some of those, like the Iron Cowboy and yeah. crazy like campaigns yeah, so, and Goggins and all those nuts? Yeah. So I I don't know which which marathon I was going to, but I watched the Iron Cowboy documentary, fifty marathons in fifty. Days Is it worth watching in fifty days? Yeah, it's interesting. It goes. It follows him. This one, right? Yeah, the story of fifty, fifty, fifty. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, it pretty much follows him trying to do 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. And it's, you could see where it's taking a toll on him physically and his family life. So this is what I do when I want to iron cowboy. There we go. Yeah. I would highly, highly recommend that one. So he, so this is 50 marathons or no, 50 I think, triathlons. I think he did. I think it was 50 triathlons. Now that I think about it. That's wild, and I think they were full Ironman tri- triathlons. I'm not. I don't remember 100 percent. Like now. training plans for these, like this is unreal. Yeah. So James Lawrence, he's Canadian, right? I feel like he's. I feel like if you name James, you're. I think good chance you're Canadian. I think he was American. I think he's American. Is he? I think so. I might be wrong about that. I don't. I don't know a whole lot about him. Other than what I watched in his Let's just see what a marathon is. Train, train, beat my best time. I'm doing this for you, not me. Um, qualify for an elite race. Oh, probably because they're like, oh, oh, we're moving. Yeah. So you already co- a lot of these a lot of these guys who do these type of things also coach, so it offsets a lot of their travel expenses. Oh, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. So they can say, okay, well, I'm going to do this. It's a, it's a triathlon. I can write off all my travel expenses to it because I coach triathletes. I mean, one-on-one coaching, that seems like a steal for, for this guy's as good as he is. It kind of looks more like group coaching. Yeah. So, it doesn't matter. I'm not doing it, but I'm just yeah, saying so- like... A lot of a lot of coaches actually that's pretty cheap in my opinion for for what I for one on one yeah absolutely yeah. Um, because I know there are coaches out there that charge several hundred dollars a month for one on one yeah yeah I was actually thinking it could even be in the thousands if they're highly you know depending on the, on the level like I'm sure yeah. the professional guys are paying a couple thousand yeah if they have so the true track whatever coach so I follow a lot of professional athletes on social media and there's a lot of different training groups out there that are coached by the same guy uh, or, or woman. And I'm sure that those coaches are getting good sums of money from the 10 or 12 athletes that they're coaching every month, at least five to $600. And if you're, if you're coaching 12 athletes and you're making $500 a month off per athlete, that's sixty. That's six thousand dollars a month. It's, it's wild. I mean, some of these guys are and gals are just. Yeah, I mean, it's 
the the sport of triathlon and endurance sports, whatever you want to call it, running distance, it's it's amazing. The the yeah, things right, Utah. the things that you can do in the sport and what's available to do on all levels, coaching as an athlete, what, as a, as a spectator. What uh, just just because we're gonna wrap it up here in a sec. What what. What haven't you accomplished yet that you want to accomplish? Obviously, the six, that's a big deal for you. So there's only a couple things left I want to do in my competitive athletic career. Um, I want to finish the six, and I want to go sub uh, six world majors, and I want to do sub two th- or run sub 230 in a marathon. The other thing is I want to do a full Ironman. Okay. To what extent, I don't know yet. Um, I've done a half. Ironman didn't really train for it, but I feel like during that half Ironman, like I got better with each uh, discipline, Mm -hmm. obviously running being my best. I could, so I did like Placid in 2018. The half? Yeah. Didn't train for it at all. I was, we were dealing with some, some family uh, health issues. um, And I like just had no desire to train. And, uh, so I remember just pretty much focusing on the swimming because that was my big, that's my big fear of the triathlon Mm -hmm. because it's such a long, long way of swimming and I'm not the strongest swimmer. Um, so I knew once I got out of the water, like things were just going to get better for me. So I got on the bike, not a strong biker. I feel like on a flatter course, I probably would have done better. Mm -hmm. Um, just because a lot of your triathletes, they have no fear. They're just bombing down. If you've ever gone up to Lake Placid. Oh, yeah, go down the notch and stuff? Go, going down from... Or, uh, no, they come up the notch, right? Yeah, they come up the they notch. They go down so, the backside? So they go down the backside by the Cascade Lakes. Yep. And if you've ever driven down that, like imagine riding down on a bike that has a half-inch wide tire. Mm-hmm. And these guys are going 65, 70 miles an hour on a bike. With I dr- we went to... Uh, one year, I went up and watched the start, and we left, like, after the swim, watched everybody swim in, kind of went around, watched the first, I think it was the woman were doing the professional event that day, yep. and we we watched for the first, the leader of the women's professional to do to finish the first lap, Yeah, and then she went back out in her second lap, and that's when we left, and then we drove out, we drove down the notch, and the people were coming up the notch on the bikes. Yeah. So it's... it's- yeah. It's a scene up there on on and, go, and climbing up the notch on a bike is impressive. Yeah, because that is there's no downhill. That is just like yeah, it's it's a it's climbing. It's slowly climbing, especially once you get past River Road, and you're climbing up what they call the Three Bears. Okay, towards Northwood's Northwood Road or whatever it is. Where, yeah, past where, White Face as you yeah. get up in that area. So, yeah, so it's pretty much right before you come into the village. Mm-hmm. Um, those last kind of three climbs are killer, and. Uh, so like this year I had two two athletes that I knew in the race, two professional women that I knew um, through running, through snowshoe running actually, because mm-hmm. a lot of your professionals, so a lot of your snowshoe runners are, are triathletes. Okay. Interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, so they came up, one's from New Hampshire, one from Florida, and uh, they did pretty well. So I positioned myself there and I'm, I was talking to my friend Brian Wilson and... I was like, 
this is one thing I want to do. This is, I want to do a full, but I don't want to do it here because I struggle with the downhills mm-hmm. on the bike. Because once I got off the bike in Lake Placid, like my, I can remember my dad being there as I exited the oval mm-hmm. and him asking me if I was okay. I was like, the hard part's over. I know what I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was going to say, exactly. So it's, I would, the thing, the hard thing with triathlons is they're so time consuming with training because you have three disciplines you have to train for. So I would have to cut back on the amount of running I'm doing and focus more on the bike and the swimming mm-hmm. and putting the time in on those disciplines because I know I can get through a, a marathon and a pretty, a, I'm pretty sure I'd be able to run a quick one at the end of, a, of an Ironman. And most of your professional men in an Ironman are only running like 235 to 245, like your leaders. I feel I could do that, but it's, I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not sure if I want to do it to compete at that level. Mm-hmm. I think I would just want to do it just to say I did one. But yeah, but, I think if you, if you finish one of those things, that's yeah, impressive. I mean, watching some of those people come in at midnight, like it's like, wow. That's the cutoff, right? Midnight. Yeah. So they start at like 6 a.m. They have like 18 hours or something like that to, to, to get in. Um, I've, I've had a couple friends or people that I've known finish. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's gnarly. Yeah. Like, like, and it, it's one of the hardest, it's the first one, right? It's the first Iron Man was there and it's also one of the hardest. So the original Iron Man is in Kona. Oh, that was. Yes. I thought someone told me this was the, the So original. it's the original. Or was it the first one off of Kona? Yeah, I think it's the first one off of okay. Kona. And I think it's the, the longest running one in the uh, mainland of the United States. Wait. Oh. Oh. Yes. So I, 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 yes. So I mean, I, Matt, years, years running. Yeah. So years running. So I think they're like twenty-two or twenty-three now. Okay. Um, and that's the longest, I believe. Continue. But I heard it's one of the hardest ones because oh, of the elevation changes. Yeah. So I, my friend from Florida, she just got her pro card this year, and she decided she was going to come up and do Lake Placid because she had heard such great things about it. I was like, mm-hmm. um, "Have you done any hill training?" She's like, "We don't really have hills here." I'm like. You might want to come come up here before she's like oh, I can't really do that because she's a teacher, as Ooh. her as her. So I feel like that's got to be a shock to the system. Yeah, so it is when you're a flatlander down in Florida, who's their highest elevation is like 310 feet in their state, and they're coming up to Lake Placid, and you mean you gain 310 feet on the bike alone, like three miles of the bike alone. Yeah, see, well, bike hilly, run hilly. I know, I just saw that. I'm like, that's, I just feel like that's. But the cool thing about Lake Placid, though, is it's one of, I think, two triathlon courses that actually, on the swim, have a cable under the water. Yeah, I heard that. Which is super nice to have, because then you, you're not veering off to the left or the right. You can kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to get right on this, this I, cable. And I was going to say, being off, a, like, even a couple degrees, you're at oh, yeah. a lot of distance. It, it, you see it a lot on people's GPSs where they go out and swim. They don't have a cable line like that where they just, they're veering off to the left and then they have to stop and then back tr- or kind of veer over to get back to where they wanted to be. And they end up swimming longer than they really have to. So the oval, or that's Mirror Lake right there. Okay. So there's your oval. Yep. So it goes out. Oh, so they come all the way. So they go out to Mount Van Hovenberg and then cut in. Yeah. So the horse, they, horse tracks down or horse. And, yeah. So they go by the horse tracks uh, and they go out to Van Hovenberg where the bobsled tra- uh, track is and do a quick U-turn and come back out. Oh, I didn't know that. And then they go down into Keene 
and then they take a hard left and go up towards Upper J, and then J into Wilmington, mm. and then before you get to Wilmington, there's actually a, a quick out and back on some side road, which is actually pretty hilly. Oh, this one. Yeah, that one. It's really hilly, and then you come back and you climb oh, through God. through Wilmington, the Notch, the Three Bears, and then up over. Then you do a quick U turn or out and back U turn right before the village there. And then you go back up past Northwood School and then down toward Mirror Lake. And they do that twice for the full. Where's, where's the little turnaround here? So there's a, there used to be a Sunoco station at the traffic light. Yep. Yeah. That right there. That right in front of that Sunoco station, there's a, there's a quick out and back late in the loop. Oh, I know where that is. Late in the loop. Yep. I know where that is. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Now I want to see what the running course is. That's wild. Yeah, so the run course, it leaves the oval and goes down past the horse show grounds onto River Road out and back. And then when you come... Oh, so it is an out and back. So when you come back into the village, you you take a right on Mirror Lake Drive or whatever it is, to head past the beach and do a U-turn and come back and you go back out and do River Road again for the full. Wait, so you start here, you go down, back, out here, down, back, here, down, back, and back. Yeah. So oh, the okay. second time, the second time you come back down Mirror Lake Drive, which is that U-turn where mm-hmm. you see the, the twelve up there. Yep. You enter into the oval, and then you do like a half a lap of the oval, or three quarters of a lap of the oval, and finish. Which is kind of cool because the oh. history, the Wait, history so, of the oval. So you start here, there, there, and then when you come back, depending on what lap you're on, because they have it's a two lapper. Yep. So the first time you come back towards the oval, you take a left and you go back down to River Road. Gotcha. And then you come back up, go back out Mirror Mirror Lake Drive, and then come back. When you come back in, you go right and into the oval. Wow. It's always been the same course. Yes, except with the exception of two years ago when they were doing the renovation on the oval. So they shifted the transition to Mirror Lake Drive. Uh, Mir- uh, not Mirror Lake Drive. They shifted it to Northwood School, which was up yeah, the hill. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I was going to say, it's like right here. Yeah, so it's, the staging area was a little different. So I'm not oh. sure if it changed the swimming course at all because of it. I don't think they could have. But yeah, so it was... Yeah, because you got to run from the... Well, I mean, you get out like right here. So yeah. You're not far from the... So it's the transition from the, from the swim to the bike is like 200 meters. Okay. Two to 300 meters from the beach to the oval. And then from the bike, you exit the bike and you go down through the, the residential area and out by Lisa G's. Mm-hmm. And then when you come in, you go behind the high school and you have to get off where you went out on the bike. And then you, okay. then you come in, you, trend, you get your shoes on, and you head out the main street side of the oval and go down towards the traffic light. Oh, man. I wonder what people eat after an Ironman. Are they even hungry at the end of one? It's... I feel like you're probably so burnt out you just want to go to bed. Well, a lot of people that you see them, they provide like pizza and chips and different foods in the finish area for the athletes a lot of people are just like I'm d- i don't want to eat any of this stuff because they're whether they had peanut butter and jelly while they were on the bike or or you can't just... listen to music either while you're doing this stuff right i i i i might be wrong in that i thought they said you couldn't listen like head like you couldn't have headphones in or anything like that i think the elites can't at least on the on the bike everybody can't maybe on the run they allow some of the age groupers to i've never really looked into that is the bike just for safety yeah because 
at least in Lake Placid, the roads aren't closed. Yeah. So you want to be able to hear anything that's coming up behind you if you can. That's wild. Yeah. It's... All right, Matt. We're going to wrap this up. That was fun. Yeah. I mean, I could I could have kept talking. I know. I'm just I'm just trying to be respectful. You got you got a coach. I got to do some work. We both have our day jobs to do here. So, um, I'd, but, be up, I'd be up for another episode, Caleb. I, I would have you back on. This was fun. Like I said, I, I knew you, you were good. Actually, most people fill this thing out. Like I don't know what I'm going to talk about. You're like we'll be able to fill two hours. Oh yeah, <laughs> easily. It's like I said when we were off mic. Like I felt like this was going to be a Joe Dirt type situation where I was just going to come on and we were just going to. I was just going to tell stories. So I was. Someone, 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 someone left you for dead at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah. My, par- <laughs> my parents didn't want me anymore. Looks so. at the old photo. Um, yeah, or, or uh, Joe Dirt. What a great, great yeah. movie. Yeah, classic. Dave, David Spade had some real uh, underrated. That's that's a whole other show right there. But we Under- could have a whole other show just about wa- movies. Just watch just Joe movies. Dirt and just, just comment on it. Just movies. Buffalo in, Bill in um, general. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, Matt, good luck with your uh, getting back on the on the road. I'd say get back on the saddle, but you probably want to get off the saddle. Yeah, I want to get off the bike. saddle and back on the road. So, <laughs> um, But, hey, I appreciate it. Um, again, um, like I said, if anybody wants to find Matt, we'll put some stuff in the show notes. But um, I'm sure, if not, they'll see you running around someplace, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Gail. Perfect. All right, episode 241, Gail and Trombley Show. We're out. Thank you for listening to The Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.